So we are back for the third and final part. Episode 26, Into the Part 3 of Budgeting the Bullet. And tonight, I'm going to warn you now, it's going to get deep. It's going to get a little crazy, but this is where stuff really starts to get cool when it comes to firearms, firearms technology, and, and gun building. So I'm joined again this week by Tyke, and this is our 26th episode. That means we've been doing this for six months on the dot now. No, right on. So we're halfway through the year, and we're just going to keep on trucking along after this one. So tonight, we're going to cover a full custom rifle built from a clone 700 action. Uh, we're just going to use that for ease of aftermarket availability. Uh, we're not going to put a price limit on it. The key point of this episode is to discuss the finer points of rifle building and how going this route can make a gun feel more like a tension on your body and not just a tool. You got to understand at this point, with this kind of money into a gun, this is not a purchase. This is an investment. So... Yeah, that's that's right. Um, some of the stuff we're gonna talk about. I mean, you can you can get in and you can easily spend six, seven, eight thousand dollars on a rifle and and uh, you know almost the same amount on some some glass for it and be into this quite a bit. Um, but they there's a lot you can do and and those things are just gonna they're gonna perform and if you know what you're feeling and what you got in your hands, you're gonna know that that uh, that that rifle was worth. Uh, every penny so uh that's something an heirloom it'll you'll hand it down through the generations so what what do you get when you buy that remington 700 style action versus the factory remington 700 action well a lot of times um if you go for like a remington style action you're going to have a lot of the the stuff that's that you would have to have done to uh to an actual factory remington 700 action um it'll be blueprinted and you'll have the the lugs will be lapped the ways will be lapped um you just have a real smooth action on the bolt everything is going to open real smooth and and move really smooth they're going to take all that those machining marks out of there um especially in those ways where uh where the lugs slide back and forth in the bolt yeah they'll they'll clean all that stuff up and it's just it feels like you're you're rubbing you know two pieces of glass together. Uh, they'll blueprint that action so that you got you know just to accurize that the action when they make them, uh, and you end up with some different finishes. Uh, I I think there's Remington might be starting to make some stuff that's not blued, but I know if you get some of those um, aftermarket or Remington style actions, you can get um, Cerakoted and, and different types of finishes and, and kind of pick your color and, and all that stuff too. And so you got some options there. Um, but really what you're going to, what you're going to end up there is you're going to end up with, uh, a blueprinted action that's ready to accept a barrel of your choice. And, uh, you're just not going to have to pay for that. Basically you're paying for the blueprinting up front. Um, they're going to be probably, stress tested and QC is going to be a lot higher than what Remington's going to do. So they'll, they'll throw out or sell a second things that, that Remington would, would not even notice were on their actions also. So you're going to end up with a lot more QC and, uh, 
uh, tender loving care on that action. And so that's really the big difference right there. I mean, it's safe to say that these companies that are producing uh, Remington 700 style actions are spending more time on that action because the majority of them aren't selling or at least in high numbers as, as a, as a company like Remington will be doing, they're not selling whole firearms, completely built firearms or selling more just actions or custom barreled actions that they, a lot of those companies do have, uh, you can order an action and have a barrel of one of the barrels they offer put onto it. So you're going to get that little attention to detail. Absolutely. And, and some of them I think might make, you know, some of these places might make one rifle or something like that, that they're, that they're putting out and it's probably a caliber that they've developed themselves for their action. And they're selling that one single rifle. Um, yeah. Some of the good ones, like, so a stiller, stiller actions, a 700 clone. And uh, I mean, you can get into uh, what about 1200 bucks for the action alone on that. Um, and that's a stiller and that's, I don't even wouldn't consider even that a, a, very high action that would so you spend uh 1200 bucks on the action and and then another uh four three four hundred dollars on a barrel and and now you're up into the two thousand mark right there you haven't even put your thousand dollar chassis on there yet so um there's you've got to realize that you don't go from remington 700 factory action to a five thousand dollar action there are steps in between also. And, and we kind of just wanted to touch on that a little bit in, in this episode as well, that, that you don't necessarily have to spend $8,000 on your rifle. There are steps in between the $1,400 build and the $6,000 build. A lot of these, a lot of these guys that are shooting these rifles that are, you're dumping seven, eight, nine thousand $9,000 into are competition guns. Um, and they may dump ten grand into a gun, but they could also use that same gun to turn around and win ten grand. So it's a it's a race car. That that's the best way to put it. Is it is a it's a race car. A fine tuned, well oiled. It it really is, yeah. And and uh, and yeah, like you say, the people that are usually buying these types of of firearms are they're making money with them. Um, and that's just kind of plain and simple They're They are, they're out there making money with these rifles. And so it pencils out for them, um, to, to spend that much, but it, it wouldn't be outside of the wheelhouse of, uh, somebody, an, an avid hunter to spend, uh, maybe three to $4,000 on a rifle build. Um, and, and that is definitely doable. So it is out there. But then when you start getting up into a lot of that different types of barrels and stuff like that, um, I mean, you could easily spend $2,000 on every component you put in this rifle and, and you end up way up there when it comes down to a final tally. Yeah, easily. Uh, and, I, you know, you talk about avid hunters. I'm actually in the process of getting my build started. Uh, where I'm going to start out with just a bear action. Um, I'm not trying to spend $3,000 on this rifle to start out with. I'm actually going to start 
probably with a blueprinted Remington 700 action instead of a Remington 700 style action because those can be found a little bit cheaper uh, than the Remington 700 style action. But again, yeah, you can you could you, you might be able to pick up like a used Remington 700 action. Uh, I mean, a re- used Remington 700 rifle, the entire thing for what, four or five hundred dollars. Well, I'll tell you this, and I was talking to you about this the other day. We spoke a lot about last week about looking for common calibers in your area, right? Yeah. And so I had been searching the interwebs trying to find a used Remington 700 uh, so that I could get the action cheaper than just going and buying a new action. Because those usually run about 500 bucks, and that's going to come with bolt, trigger, all everything but a barrel and stock. Um, so, and I was looking on arms list, searching Remington 700. And I'm finding every Joe Schmo sniper who bought their bought a Remington 700 308 and then put it into uh, like a Magpul stock. Yeah, you know I'm not talking down on the Magpul stock. They're <clears throat> excellent stocks for the money. They're very uh, customizable to the user for fit wise, and they're really you know they can be found for 250 bucks. Which is great. Oh, yeah. Um, but that doesn't make that $500 rifle a $1,200 rifle, at least retail-wise. But that's what I'm seeing these guns kind of resell for. So I went shifted away from that, and I started searching for 243 in 700, which is very common caliber in my area down here in the southeast. And uh, I started seeing guns in the 350 to $400 range, some a little cheaper, making me really wish I had cash in hand at the moment. <laughs> because if I'd have had it, I'd already had a 243. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to take the barrel off of that. I'm going to take the stock off of that. And I'm going to get back on eBay or wherever. I'm going to resell those parts because I don't need them. I'm not building a 243. But because the 243 has the same size bolt face as the round I intend to use, uh, I'll be able to use that bolt, that action, everything else yeah you use uh you know if it's not the stock you want you can sell that uh the one thing about uh i I know it's not in your plans but one thing about doing what you did is if you're planning on doing a rifle build figure out what you want to build that in and then um go looking for a common caliber like that that's got a bolt face and all that that's going to work for you and you can use this rifle and hunt with it until you can save up enough money to start doing making what you actually want Um, oh that's another thought there to kind of consider as you're doing this and, and planning this build. And that's the thing, you know, another thing to think about too is before you go and, and if you're going to buy, like we talked about last week, you start with that barreled action. If you think you want a heavier barrel or a more accurate barrel, just a better barrel than the factory barrel, go out, take the range time and literally burn that barrel out on the range learning to shoot that gun in that caliber before you switch over to that heavier, better manufactured barrel. And you'll notice a bigger difference because. Oh yeah. Well, and and you, yeah, all that trigger time is going to make a huge difference. And so, yeah, if you can go burn that barrel out while you're saving up money to buy what the one you want, um, it's still the same trigger unless you're going to change that too. But you might find that by the time you finish shooting that thing, uh, four or five thousand times that uh, that trigger might feel pretty good right so 
what are the differences in action metals? I know you see some made out of titanium, some made out of stainless steel, carbon steel. What what is that? Titanium obviously cuts quite a bit in weight because it's a very strong, very lightweight metal. Um, but they're also very expensive. But what other advantages, disadvantages do these different metal types offer? Well, so you're going to have that's just the stiffness there of the action. Um, so your um, high carbon or blued steel is a standard action. You're going to see 90% of the time is going to be um, just a, a uh, carbon steel action. And this is a, it's an action that they have turned and, and done the machining process on and then they will harden it in a, in a furnace to a certain Rockwell hardness number and once they hit that number then they then they'll uh proof that action and make sure that it's not going to kill somebody and then they'll be able to send that out um stainless steel is an is another one it's um it doesn't reach the same rockwell hardness as carbon steel will and that's just because of the the alloys that they put in there to keep it from staining or from rusting um and they just start are not able to achieve the same hardness so you end up with a little more flexible action and you know, i'm not talking about like you know a spring flexible it, but there is there is uh there's more flex you probably won't be able to it's imperceptible um and so but there is going to be a little more flex in that action and then uh, uh and then the titanium is is probably going to be the best of both worlds there but again, those are going to be very expensive. And so if you've got, you know, you win the lottery, you might, you might go ahead and, uh, and look at one of those titanium actions or something like that. Uh, Cause they're going to be lightweight. Uh, they're going to not really have a whole lot of give to them. They'll probably have less give than a carbon action would. Um, and, and they're not going to rust either where that, that's one thing with the, the, um, carbon steel actions you gotta you gotta watch them for rust and stuff like that you're gonna probably pay a little bit more for stainless steel than carbon steel and that's uh you can you can neglect that stainless steel a little more but really if you're looking at at doing something like what we're talking about i i would find it hard to believe that somebody's going to um neglect taking care of of a rifle that like what we're talking about building right now so but you can i mean it's one thing to neglect it for a year. It's another thing to neglect it for a night. And so you can get away with a little more of that on a, on a stainless steel or a titanium action. I, if I spend 10 grand on a rifle, it's got a seat at the dinner table, literally. <laughs> I'm watching TV with it. Uh, yeah, yeah so I'm the same way. Some, uh, <laughs> I'll sleep on the couch with it, I guess, probably. Yeah. <laughs> Oh man. So we've talked about the actions, but let's talk about the barrels. Let, let's step out away from that action a little bit. Talk about different barrel manufacturers. We've got, there's so many out there. Hart, Barlene, uh, you know, take a barrel. But what, what sets them apart? Uh, I guess mainly what I'm asking are what are the difference? And a lot of them have different methods in rifling. Um, and how does that make a difference and, and barrel materials and, and things of that nature? Yeah. So, um, you, what you're dealing with when you start choosing a barrel is going to be accuracy, longevity, 
and price. And so this is one of those things that you've kind of got to look at here. And I think we mentioned it a little bit last week, but you're not going to get all three. Um, You you get to choose. You get to choose probably one when we start getting into into these. And and what a lot of people are going to look for are going to be the the accuracy. Uh, When you start talking about spending this type of money on it and you're deciding between a $500 and a $700 barrel, you're just going to go ahead and spend the other 200 and, and get the most accurate option for, for your build. Um, so most common you're going to see will be a stainless steel, uh, stainless steel barrels. And uh, a couple of the ways that they'll, the most common ways for them to, uh, put rifling in the bore is to they'll either it's called cut single line cut rifling and and that's just uh, a machine with one cutter that is is on a twist and they they just cut a th- you know a thousandth or a ten thousandth off at a time and then when they're done then they rotate that thing say uh, 60 degrees and then they cut another one and it's the same thing. It's a very tedious process. takes a very long time. But that cut rifling is much more accurate and will last much longer and will maintain accuracy for a much longer period of the barrel than uh, the other type, which is called a button-pulled rifling. And that's where they basically they have a die that they pull through the barrel, and it just smears the grooves in the rifling right out of the bore. So it's, it's not really cutting them. It's actually just taking that. And it's, there's so much pressure applied that it's smearing the steel off and they just pull that out. And, and the problem with that is you end up with a lot of very fine um, scratches all the way down the bore because you're just kind of smearing the steel out of there. You're not actually cutting the material very cleanly. Um, there are ways to fix it, but I, I think by the time you pay to have a gunsmith fix button rifling, you probably could have bought a cut rifling barrel anyway. Uh, one of the ways they do that is is they just will uh, just lap the barrel. Um, and that pour a, they'll pour a cast of Cerosafe or something into the bore, uh, which will, when it cools, shrink about uh one ten thousandth less than the bore diameter and then they attach that to a rod and they use lapping compound and just run that back and forth through the barrel until they take all of those uh, minor imperfections out of there so uh and we talked that this is kind of off of the topic of um what we've kind of been sticking to, which is mainly bolt action rifles, but this is more common in your, in the AR world, but you have different barrel coatings. Uh, Chrome Ollie uh, is probably the most common. And then, but you have uh, a nitride coating that's kind of coming up in the game. And these things help improve barrel life. Uh, but there is also a, a decrease in accuracy, especially with chrome lining. Um, not that you would necessarily notice too much the layperson shooting a semi-automatic 223 because they're actually having to overbore 
a rifle that's chrome, a rifle barrel that's chrome lined, and then line it with chrome back to the the size it needs to be. Um, and I, but what do those things do for barrel life? I mean, I'm a bit sacrilegious on it, it, people want to gun me away for doing what I did, but I run a stainless steel barrel in my AR. But you also don't see those same guys that want to sit there and say you you need to have barrel life, barrel life, barrel life sitting there like i do and putting multiple rounds inside of a half gallon jug at 700 yards out of a 16 inch barrel well so the the chrome molly line barrels that was a, a a dod type of a thing the the dod wanted to greatly extend the barrel life of of the m4s and the m16 so they chrome molly line the barrel well a lot of rounds through a barrel means one thing to your average shooter when you're paying for the ammo and it means a completely different thing when you're talking about the dod who just gives you ammo willy-nilly and you just go shoot it right so i mean there was there was times where i would when i was in the army and we would shoot what we i would probably shoot a thousand rounds in a day through an m4 Easily. Uh, and and they wanted they wanted those barrel lives up in the 60, 70,000 round range is where they were wanting to get that wear out. You're talking about a stainless barrel on a 223. You're probably still looking at 6,000 rounds or something like that. And if you're buying all that ammo, I'd say the average person doesn't do that very often. If you're looking at buying a $200 barrel every six to 10 years to replace your stainless steel barrel on an AR, it's not a it's not a huge deal it's uh, what twenty dollars a year or something like that you gotta you gotta save up and then you can replace the barrel when it burns out in 10 years and that's That's only about 150 to 200 bucks on that barrel so i mean and i don't i don't go to the range with that rifle and and mag dump rounds and things uh when i do shoot that rifle and i shoot a lot at Shooting that rifle a lot in one range session is probably 150 rounds. But I'm also shooting round. I'm shooting. I'm shooting a dollar, a dollar a pull rounds, uh, factory ammunition out of it for the most part. I don't shoot 150 rounds of that because I can't afford it. But I will go through maybe two boxes, forty dollars worth of Hornady match grade 75 grain, uh, two two three, if I've got the time. And I'll shoot some lighter stuff uh, just to get some trigger time. And I, I get, I don't get as good of accuracy out of, definitely not out of 55 grain as I do out of 75 grain. No, no, yeah, you're not. Um, yeah, you're just... It's good for trigger time. Yeah, it, and it works. And, and it's it's kind of a, a medium between dry firing and, and slow firing with with what you want. You you're developing a feel for that trigger and and just how the gun feels in your hand as it is doing what it's doing and and uh, being able to spot you know uh, recognize your sights and all that stuff through recoil and everything. And so it is good to go out and shoot that stuff. And and you're going to shoot an, an AR or two two three way more than you're going to go shoot a seven Magnum. Yeah, if you can go and shoot a, a, a seven millimeter magnum, or any banded magnum for that matter, 150 times in a day, well then kudos. But you're not going to do that the you're next day. <laughs> you're more of a man than me. You can shoot <laughs> a banded magnum 150 times. 
day. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, you're not going to come anywhere close to that. You might shoot it. 20 would be a lot. Unless you're doing a competition type stuff where you've got a 60 round course of fire or something like that. But right. I mean, even, even that you're not going to want to go do it the next day. But a lot of guys that are shooting a competition with a 60 round course of fire aren't shooting a banded magnum either. They're shooting six, five or a six millimeter, uh, short action round. You don't see a lot of long action and, and, uh, high, high volume competitions like a, you, you might see it in precision rifle, uh, but you're not going to see it in tactical precision rifle where you're going to have to move from one shooting position to another across the field at unknown or unknown distance. Uh, you're just not going to see those magnum rounds because those guys, they have to factor in recoil. They're moving, they're calling their own wind, um, and they need to be able to see impact when when they shoot so they can make that adjustment if they miss so they're going to shoot those lesser recoiling but highly effective rounds at ranges on steel or so that they can watch through their scope to see impact and make adjustments instead of being getting that heavy recoil of a banded magnum or even just a magnum for that matter and then missing that impact and not knowing where to make the adjustment. So there are advantages over. That's where you see that big advantage of the short action versus long action rounds for the most part. Yeah. And, and those guys, they're not shooting with a spotter and stuff like that. So they, they really have to spot their own shots. So they'll never be able to, to make any adjustment or anything to, to hit the target. So that makes a lot of sense. Um, I think I kind of, we, we walked past blueprinting. Uh, an action and so we'll just touch on that because it it really does make a big difference and um and so we'll just go back and touch on just real fast what's going to be what's going to cost if that's all right yeah no go ahead all right so uh blueprinting an action is is what they're gonna what the gunsmith's gonna do is he'll he will completely take he'll take the bolt action rifle completely apart uh, take the barrel off and then when, <clears throat> sorry, uh, once the barrel's off, then he'll have access to the, to the locking lugs inside of that action body. Um, and they, they make hand lappers and then they make ones you can put on a, a lathe, uh, but then they have bushings. And so they'll run those bushings in there, pound them in those guide the, uh, lapping tools. And they will lap and square the locking lugs on the receiver. Uh, So they'll true those so that they are square, completely square with the face of the action is the end goal. Um, Once those are trued, then they'll use that as a point to go and true the face of the action. That's where the barrel uh, the barrel recoil lug will mate all at the face of the action where the chamber is. So all that stuff gets gets in there. So it's true. You don't have the the barrel is not cocked to one side or the other by a, a ten thousandth or a half of or half of that. Um, then they will true the threads so that they run true to the locking lugs in the 
in the receiver and that the threads keep the barrel is then true to those threads, the face of the receiver and the locking lugs on the receiver are all square and true to one another. So they all are in, they all, all of their flat surfaces run on the same horizontal plane. Um, and then what they'll do is you'll true the contact portions of the locking lugs on the bolt so that they make full contact on the corresponding lugs on the receiver. And then the last thing they'll do is true the face of the bolt. Um, a lot of bolts will be either concave, the bolt face. This is where the the head stamp part of the cartridge fits into the bolt. Um, they'll either be concave or convex. They're not completely true. And so, and there might be a little bit crooked out of, out of plane with the rest of, of the action and the locking lugs. And what that's going to do is put the, actually put the cartridge into the chamber somewhat crooked. Uh, once they true that, then you'll have the face of the bolt, the backside of the locking lugs on the bolt, the front side of the locking lugs in the receiver, the threads, and the face of the receiver where the uh, barrel mate mating happens up there. All of that stuff will be on the same horizontal plane, and there's no movement or give in the in the bolt at all when under pressure. And so that's the process that happens, and the national average for that kind of work is about uh, between 200 and $350 to have that done. So yeah, that's one thing you're looking at if you're going to buy a, a factory or a used uh, 700 action. That's that's what probably you're going to look at to get it everything trued up and on par with some of these other actions. That doesn't include polishing those raceways. So um, that that's probably another $100 to get the raceways polished. So you just got that you know, smooth, buttery action. But really, you know, $350, $400 is not that big a deal, especially if to, to have that done. If you don't look at, if you're looking at this from a standpoint of already owning a 700 rifle, we say you've got a rifle you've been shooting for years and you're ready to retire this rifle want to you want to step into the game of a full custom <clears throat> there's no reason you shouldn't look at having that rifle uh blueprinted like that that action blueprinted because you're going to save yourself 200 bucks doing all that having it done versus going and buying an action buying a, a remington 700 style action Oh, yeah. And that's just buying the action. We're not even talking about buying one of these custom actions because uh, those customs, like like I think I mentioned, are, they're more up about $1,200 to $1,400 for one of those. And I, that w- that's not even a full custom. Your full, full custom guys you're probably not going to find on the internet. You need to... Um, you'll need to start making phone calls because he, your full custom guys that do one-off, truly one-off rifles are working in a shop in their backyard and they don't advertise and they've got more work than they can handle. Right. 
um, and you're probably looking at uh, 18 months to three years or something for a full, truly full custom build like that. I'm talking about a a custom action that has had gunsmiths working on it to make it where it operates like it should. Um, and so that that's where we're really something that you can you can order online and pick up at your gun store. And uh, I, I've seen some Remington 700 style actions for about six hundred dollars, uh, but we're not talking action bolt trigger. We're just simply talking the action. So to get a a quality bolt to go with that six hundred dollar action. 200 bucks to get a quality trigger to go on that quality to go with that quality action and quality bolt 200 bucks so again now you're looking at an extra now we're over the thousand at the thousand dollar mark well let's see uh a defiance defiance actions are right about the 1300 dollar mark give or take um and they come with a bolt. So you're still needing to get a trigger for even from there. One one good thing about these, instead of doing like a, a factory 700 build, is these semi-custom actions like uh, your Defiance um, Borden. A lot of them are going to have the recoil lug machined into the action. Um, so that is one thing that's going to make that that a lot stiffer because you're not having a, re- a two-piece re- recoil lug on there uh, because it's it's integral. So that's why, like the Defiance, I I really like those. Those are are awesome actions. Some of the Stillers are that way. Um, but if you're going to get, if, if you get an action with that re- recoil lug is machined into that action and you're looking at the, around the $1,300 mark and it's worth every penny because especially if you're looking at extreme accuracy to have that integral recoil lug in the action and not a separate piece that's held on by the barrel. So what are we, what are we talking? Let, let's say one of these actions with the, Integral lug, a recoil lug, with a factory barrel, factory trigger, factory stock. What are we talking difference in accuracy just because of the action? Um, I know this is not this is not something you can quantify down to. This this is a, a this this is swag. This is a scientific wild ass guess. Okay. Um, I would say if you're gonna still uh, if you're if you're gonna run a factory barrel factory trigger factory stock on a defiance action um you might you might see half a minute to a minute increase but it all depends on on uh it depends on everything right so that's the whole thing about building like firearms in general everything depends on everything else and so there's a billion different options that you can come up with and you can devote your life to finding the perfect rifle 
and never achieve it and never hit half of the different combinations that you can even think of. And so there's, there's just so many options here and, and kind of, I guess what we're trying to wade through a little bit here is ways to narrow it down from, you know, a thousand action manufacturers, a thousand barrel manufacturers, a thousand stock manufacturers and kind of wade through some of that and say, these are a good place to start. But what we're talking about right now is you're going to spend money. Yes. You're, you're gonna spend money on this. And, and if you are buying, if you're spending $1,400 on an action, you probably need to be spending like 300 on a trigger four to 700 on a barrel and right around the thousand dollar mark on a stock. Um, and if you're, you're going to take, you're going to take all that money you spent on that entire gun and you're going to invest at a minimum that much into optics at a minimum. Yeah. I, I don't know that that's necessarily, uh, a hard and fast rule. Anymore. I, I would say you're starting at at the bottom at the thousand dollar mark. Yeah, I would say a little bit, probably the fifteen hundred dollar mark. Yeah. Um, but what I guess really what I'm trying to to get at with this whole build build a rifle thing is that if you are buying quality across the board, the QC what you're paying for on on those different barrels and actions and stocks you're you're paying for the guy that sits in the room with calipers and makes sure that all of that stuff are within the tolerances that they are given and you've got to pay for that guy who gets paid a lot of money to sit in there and make sure that all of that stuff is within the tolerances that it needs to be within and the fact that they throw out probably three and ten of everything they make. They either throw it out, they sell it as a second, but they're losing money on it. And so you're paying to recover that cost too, so that these companies can, can stay in business. Um, and so that, that's really what it is. You're, you're paying for the guy sitting in the back room with his little uh, x-ray machine and his sonogram and, and all this stuff he's going through. And you're paying for those machines that he's using and, and just all these 3D scanners and all the stuff that they use to make sure that all of those parts are within uh, a thousandth of where they need to be. And that takes time and money to do that. And that's what you're, that's what you're paying for on these, on these actions. But you do notice it downrange. Uh, the question you asked is very difficult about, you know, putting this uh, like a defiance on, on a stock, everything else, because, the action, you know, you could have got gotten a Remington action that was the first one off the line that day and was cut perfect. And so you really gain nothing on the action at that point. Right. Um, but if you, you know, and you may, you may have needed to change the barrel and that's where it gets a little bit dicey in, in that it's, it's just really hard to say where the problem is. Um, there might be ways you can tell uh, if you get if you want to take that action out and you can you can look at the wear 
on the locking lugs of the bolt to see if they're wearing evenly. And if they're wearing evenly, then you've got good lockup between the bolt locking lugs and the lugs in the receiver, the receiver lugs. So if, if you've got real even wear and the entire portion of those bolt lugs are all, there's no more finish on those, then you've got a pretty good lockup in there. Um, you can take like a, a ruler, you can get a steel rule and you can put it down, just get a real skinny machinist ruler and you put it down there and on the bolt face. And if you can see it shine a flashlight on the backside, if you see any daylight coming through on either the outside or the inside, then you need to true that bolt face. Um, and then there are, if you can, uh, you take a, like a steel sanding block that is trued and actually square. Uh, they make them out of aluminum and you can get them uh, from like different supply houses. Uh, they're actually true. And you put a little bit of lapping compound on that and you run that over the face of the action where the, the barrel act meets the, the face of that receiver. And if you get real even wear on all of that blued surface up there, then you've got a pretty that then that the uh, face of that receiver is going to be uh, fairly true. Now, the only thing you're not going to know by doing this is if that face of the retriever of the receiver, the threads and the face of those locking lugs are true to one another. If they're all on the same plane, you'll know you got good contact and all that, but you just won't know if you've got, if they're all on the same plane as one another. Um, and that's what, that's what you're really paying for when you get a blueprinted action. Um, but it is a good way to kind of tell that, okay, this is probably not the action that I need to look at here. It's, it might be the barrel. Um, and so it's just a way to eliminate, well, do I need, do I need to blueprint this action? Do I need to get a new action? Do I need to really start looking at the barrel or the stock, you know, and you can kind of move on from there. So <clears throat> I want to say something here before we get way too deep and lose some people because we're only in about ankle height weeds right now (laughs) and we're going to get a lot deeper than this but when you when you look at that factory rifle and you shoot it at 100 yards and you're getting that one inch or better group and you're saying well this this rifle shoots a minute of angle why do i need to worry about doing something better than this this rifle's just fine well it's not so much does it shoot a minute of angle at 100 yards, but how well does it hold a minute of angle? Because I'd be willing to bet the majority of factory rifles that will shoot a minute of angle at 100 yards, and you stepped them out to 500, they are no longer shooting five inches. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with that. And if you're planning on setting up a rifle for, for – We'll call it. We're not going to. We'll call it long range, which I consider to be about uh, beyond 800 yards. Uh, if you're setting something up to be able to shoot at that distance, um, you you need that. You you need to set. You need to check that um, and make sure you're still holding that. Whatever group you're holding at 100, you should be pretty dang close at five. So if you're holding a quarter minute or something like that at 100. Um, you should be probably within right about a 
half a minute or something like that at at five or by the time you hit a thousand and you're at a minute and a half you're off the target uh, if you make one little mistake in a wind call you're you're it's the difference between a hit and a miss right and i think it's pretty generally agreed upon from what i've read that long range starts somewhere between 600 and 800 yards yeah i just call them about 800 yards um you you get out to between four and between four and eight hundred yards, and you can. There's a lot of margin for error out there as far as your wind calls go. Uh, you really need to know your external ballistics and and calculate the drop that you're going to have at those ranges. But you've got a little bit of leeway there as far as your wind calls, unless you're trying to shoot in a hurricane or something like that, you know. But uh, for the most part, if you have average winds up, no, you know, right around the t- ten mile an hour mark or something like that, uh, you can you can make a one minute uh, missed call on your wind and still be most of the time within the range of a competition size target. So, man, we are already almost an hour into this, and we we haven't even touched the surface barely. <laughs> So, uh, before we get any deeper, let's go ahead and we're going to talk about our partner, Sportsman Shield. Uh, Sportsman Shield makes a durable outdoor decal that makes thieves believe your trail camera has a GPS tracking device inside. Uh, So, it's a little one-inch by about three-inch sticker that is not – I mean, if you think about the stickers you put on your car – They're a little thicker than the stickers you would see in a kid's sticker book. These stickers you're getting from Sportsman Shield are thicker than that. They're extremely durable uh, from what I've seen. And they, I haven't had them in the woods long enough to tell you how they're going to hold up to fading and things like that. But if I had to guess, because of their, the quality of sticker that I got from them, it's going to hold up really well. Very sticky. It's not going to come off in the weather. Mine haven't yet. So, um, you're going to get them. You can go on their website. You can get them from your tra- for your trail cameras. And now they make them for your tree stand as well. So if you're going to, if you would put up a posted sign on your property to tell people to stay away because it's yours, why wouldn't you do that for your trail camera or your tree stand? And they're really right at about the same price as a posted sign. So, but you can go on their website and you can use offer code UPOutdoors20 capital U, capital P, capital O, and Outdoors 20 at checkout, you can get 20% off of your order. So get on their website. You can just Google Sportsman's Shield or go to Sportsman's with an S, shield.com and get you some of those stickers. All right, so let's talk about muzzle velocity. Uh, and with muzzle velocity, we'll talk about barrel length and how that affects accuracy. All right. So uh, muz- muzzle velocity is, is really what is going to affect barrel life and accuracy. And for longer range systems and stuff like that, we want to be pushing as much muzzle velocity as we can because more muzzle velocity equals less flight time, which equals 
uh, less opportunity for physics to act upon the projectile during its flight. The opposite side of that coin is the faster you shoot something, the faster you're going to wear out the barrel. Um, also, you can only push chamber pressures so high to the point where your case is going to rupture. You might end up with a firing pin in your face or the barrel is going to rupture. And so you can only push so much pressure. You need pressure to produce velocity. And so we're kind of limited on the amount of pressure we can drive by the type of materials used to make the barrel. And also, uh, it's kind of a trade-off then for barrel life. So you get higher velocity, more accuracy, less barrel life um, to a point where you try and push around so fast that the firearm blows up in or a catastrophic failure in one shape or form. Um, there's a really cool website. It's called ballisticsbytheinch.com. And what they do is they go out with a barrel and they chrono it. They shoot it, they chrono it, and they cut an inch off. They shoot it on a chrono and they cut an inch off. And it's a really good website. You can go there and check and see if what based on what cartridge you you want to try and build the gun for you can go here and you can kind of see where you get diminishing returns on barrel length so longer barrel more velocity to a point that you reach full powder burn and chamber pressures drop before the projectile leaves the muzzle and then the drag in the muzzle slows the bullet down um, but so you really there's an optimal length where you achieve full powder burn the same time the bullet exits the muzzle. So, and that's going to be different for every round. I mean, you, you've got rounds like uh, the 300 blackout that were literally designed to run in a 10 and a half inch barrel. So when you stretch out to that 16, 18 inch barrel, which is still uh, for the, in, in the bolt action world is still fairly short. You, you've hit that point of uh, you, the, the diminishing return. Yeah, and then there's some uh, this like the six five Creedmoor I think is is works best on uh, like a twenty four inch barrel. Yeah, and that, I mean that that can be a lot of barrel. Twenty four inches, you think two feet doesn't sound like a lot until you put that in front of a stock and everything else. And then, you know, we're in the high end of things. I run a suppressor on my six, five Creedmoor, uh, that I hunt whitetail with. And I, I'm adding 10 inches of length to the end of that barrel. It's like carrying a dang shock, shot broom through the woods. Yeah. So you need to really think about the purpose of the round, you know, your intended purpose. Uh, if you intend to run suppressed or unsuppressed, you know, there's a lot of factors that can play into what you're choosing to run as a round. Uh, and that's why I'm building a rifle. Uh, and I've chose 338 Federal, which is more designed to run in a, a shorter barrel, like the AR length 16 to 18 inch barrel, which is going to get back into the 22, 24 inch range with a suppressor on there. Yeah. And, and the suppressors, though. 
they'll give you a little bit more velocity. Not quite what a barrel that length would give you, but they will uh, give you gains over the barrel without the suppressor present. So um, I think I heard one time that, that there's this thing going around that says that suppressors will slow the round down. And um, I don't know that I necessarily agree with that. I'm not going to take a stand. I'm not going to die on that hill today, but um, from, from what I understand that it actually increases muzzle velocity over the same length barrel uh, without the suppressor. So, well, I can tell you without a doubt, suppressors create back pressure. Um, they do create more pressure inside the barrel. Uh, when I first built my 300 blackout that I run my suppressor on, I have a, a, a short barrel rifle with a 10 and a half inch barrel and ran a mid-length gas system. Uh, and I could not run subsonic ammunition through that rifle without the suppressor attached. So. Yeah. Well, they're going to create more back pressure because they're storing right. pressure in the chamber of the suppressor. And then once the bullet goes by, it has nowhere to go but back into the chamber. But it doesn't necessarily mean because the pressure is not really capable of once the pressure, once the bullet exits the actual muzzle and gets into the suppressor, then that that pressure that's following it is expanding and cooling off. And it's not really capable of getting out in front of the bullet to slow it down. You are just showing a, a slight drop in the pressure surrounding the bullet as it passes through the suppressor. Well, it still has to go somewhere. And so what it then does is it actually goes back into the chamber because the bullet's still blocking its path from being able to exit out the front. Uh, once the bullet exits, then those gases can follow the bullet out the front. Um, and by that time, the majority of them have been released into the cooling chamber of the suppressor. They've cooled off, and, and now they're chasing that bullet out. Uh, once that bullet exits the muzzle, it, it will create a slight vacuum in there and actually suck some of that stuff out behind it. But it will increase chamber pressure from the time that the bullet enters the suppressor until it exit suppressor you're going to have higher chamber pressures because that gas has got to go somewhere so before we step off this topic i will put this out there i do not suggest because i learned this the expensive way running a suppressor on a 300 blackout pistol or short barrel rifle build with a mid-length gas system it is at first, cleaner, because it does blow a lot of gas back into the chamber. That's how an AR works. It, it functions on its own gas. Um, it, it blows less back in there. You get less in your face. But because it puts less into the chamber, uh, I was only getting about 60 to 75 rounds out of that rifle running subsonic ammunition before I started having uh, failure to ejects. Um, because... As it got dirty, it got harder for the bolt to, to move. Therefore, it created issues. There wasn't enough gas to get it to cycle. So I stepped away from that mid-length gas system down to a pistol-length gas system, and I, I no longer have that issue. But I do have more gas in my face. So it's a trade-off. Uh, yeah. What you want to do with the rifle. Yeah, it is. There's just – there are – there. 
there's all kinds of data out there and there are ways to determine um, what your optimal barrel length is going to be. And, and I don't know that you're going to find a whole lot of resources for if you want to run suppressed, what you're looking at as an optimal barrel length. Um, but I'm sure with a little bit of research, you can probably get really close to, to what you're looking for. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, we're not really on some autos right now. But yeah, I I totally agree. Like, I I know what, uh, especially shooting like full auto and stuff with uh, with the suppressor on. Well, it looked like I had I had face paint on when I was done. It's fun though. Oh, it's fun, but (laughs) yeah, it's a mess. Um, and I'll say this to the suppressor: when you're looking at muzzle velocities and running around. Um, out of a, a, a barrel length, my big thing that comes into play with me is total length of the system once I have the suppressor attached. Because like I said, I'm carrying a, a 6.5 now where I'm, I'm looking at 22 inches. I'm looking at 32 inches of barrel going through the woods. Yeah, that's pretty rough. Uh, in, a, in a scenario where I'm where I, like I currently hunt now where I stand hunt, not really a big deal because I'm walking to and from the tree stand, carrying that rifle maybe on my shoulder, maybe in my hand. Um, but it does snag on things. It, it makes it frustrating to try and get through thick brush. It makes it frustrating to try and be quiet. Um, but when I'm looking at what I'm going to run that suppressor on, I'm looking at what rounds function best in a barrel length that's going to give me a total length that I, that I want. So I'm, I'm looking at barrel lengths. I'm saying I have, I know I have 10 inches of suppressor. So I want at, I want 16 inches of barrel. What round is going to function best in 16, you know, 14 and a half to 16 and a half inches of barrel. Yeah. You, you come at that from a little bit different perspective. Uh, you're not looking at what, what are my external ballistics going to look like at um, 800 to 1200 yards. You're looking at, I want a barrel length this long. Now, which rounds will perform at that point? Right, um, and and it's it's all comes that all comes into play when you're looking at building a custom rifle, um, and and you have to think about where you're going to be. Does anybody care if you're in the high desert of Wyoming and you're not suppressed? No, nobody cares because there's not a soul, living soul, other than whatever game you're going after within hundreds of miles from where you're standing right now and they're not even going to hear it but you know if you're if you're hunting in um an, an area where you have some population stuff like that then then you might want to really think about do i need to be suppressed and am i going to break brush or am i walking through ankle high grass and some sagebrush here and there um i don't care if if uh if i could get a lightweight rifle and the the point of diminishing return on the barrel length was 32 inches and i could manage to lug that thing around you walking out through some of the country in wyoming and idaho and utah and nevada you're not worried about brush all you do is just walk around it because there's one piece of sagebrush every 100 yards or something um you're not worried about all that the length and everything as long as it's the most accurate version uh you got to consider weight weight also but 
but barrel length doesn't come into play there. But you get down into uh, the hardwood forest and stuff like that where you're breaking brush and, and uh, you know, dragging your ass through a bunch of uh, manzanita or, or uh, chemise or something like that, then, uh, yeah, you might want to shrink that thing down a little bit because it will just make you frustrated and, and less likely to enjoy the hunt you're on. And I run a suppressor not for the comfort of others, but for the comfort of myself. Uh, it is far more comfortable to, to shoot a gun with a suppressor on it than it is to shoot one without. I don't feel the need to wear hearing protection, and I really didn't growing up either, but I'm paying for that now um, with tinnitus and hearing loss. Uh, so I would advise you now, if you're not going to run a suppressor, to invest in some electronic hearing protection um, which I wear when I don't run the suppressor but so the, the, the thing to me that I'm looking at is not necessarily who I'm going to offend with my rifle shot but what kind of terrain am I going to be using this rifle in if I'm hunting out west like you're talking about I don't care if I've got 32 inches of barrel I'm not having to duck under trees and through vines and everything else to get where I'm going like you were saying so I'm, yeah. I'm more considering terrain over noise. Well, and you're you're building this rifle based on your terrain. Absolutely. Which is, you know, probably no more than about a a 400 yard shot would be a, a That's long, a long one. Shot. Huh? That's a long shot. That would be a very long shot, and and so you're not really necessarily needing that extra barrel length and. Uh, time time for the powder to burn you start running these huge huge cases on little bullets like the seven mag and you need some barrel there to allow all that powder to burn while that bullet's in the barrel um that's not that's not what we're looking at but uh yeah i mean i know we're talking just custom build build what you want for where you're gonna hunt and it makes a lot of sense you know if you're if you're gonna hunt uh, 70 to 80 times a year in in thick underbrush hardwood stands stuff like that and your longest shot is going to be no more than 400 and with the average shot being between 100 and 150 oh it's a beautiful way to, to look at that and you want to have that short maneuverable rifle and you're going to hunt with that a lot more you, you'd be better off if you got a a hunt you're planning to go out west and you're going to go one time in your life maybe two um look a little bit more at the high-end rifle manufacturers and maybe don't consider a, a one-off custom do a just buy a quality built rifle over the counter um and that'll do everything it needs you to do out west. And, and if it's going to be a safe queen the rest of the time, then, then it'd be kind of a shame to put all this time, effort, and thought into building the perfect rifle for you to go shoot it, to go actually go hunt with it two times. Um, and I'll say this, Remington, Savage, Ruger, Browning, they all make those factory rifles that are more than capable for a whole lot less than building a full, a, a full custom. Yeah, if you're going to build a full custom, make sure it's something you can use day in, day out, every time you go hunting. Um, yeah, this is this is not really what you're going to want to do if 
you're going to, if you're planning a trip, a, a week hunting trip out of state somewhere to go for a specific type of game. If it's something you do every year and you're put, constantly putting in for tags all over the West, um, then yeah, maybe look at a custom rifle for that. But if you hunt primarily in, in underbrush and thick woods and stuff like that, spend that money on a rifle you're going to enjoy and, and not just look at every time you go open up and pull out your thirty thirty. So let's, we, we've talked about the action. We've talked about the barrel. Uh, before we jump into the stock, let's talk about triggers. Um, what's the difference? So you have a lot of, I know this is kind of broad, but factory triggers are. <laughs> yeah, they're not all bad. Um, but they're not all good either, and they're all different. So in, you have your average Remington trigger, which is single stage. Uh, I'm not sure your average poundage coming from the factory. But then you look at like Savage with the Accu trigger, uh, which are generally f- very light triggers. What is that? Why are they the way they are? I guess is the best way to ask that question. The, like the Savage Accu triggers versus the Remington trigger. Well, the the Remington seven hundred triggers are are like a direct contact type of a sear. Um, the 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 sear is on the trigger and is connected directly to the bolt face. There is no safety other than something that will put a cross bolt in there and keep that firing pin from moving forward. So. They are designed, um, and they usually have a pull weight heavy enough to make it safe for field use. Um, because if you don't have the safety engaged, then it's it's a little more likely that if you were to bump that trigger off or something or stumble or something like that, there's nothing there to keep that the mass of the trigger from uh, releasing the sear from the firing pin. Um, the Accu trigger is designed, it has almost like a Glock, uh, a Glock style safety trigger, uh, safety on the trigger. And it's, it's of a different mass. So that the way the Glock trigger safety and the Accurite trigger safeties work is the trigger has one mass and the trigger safety has a different mass. So if you drop that rifle and, and the mechanical safety is turned off, when it impacts the ground, the lightweight safety is going, the lightweight trigger safety is going to come off and go back on before the main trigger mass has a chance to move backwards. And that trigger safety locks the trigger from moving. And so you end up with these two different mass objects that once they hit will start motion but the lightweight trigger will not move as far because it doesn't have as much mass. And so it won't move far enough to unlock that, uh, the actual trigger to be able to react on the mechanism that uh, releases the firing pin. So the Savage Accu trigger allows you to have a lighter trigger pull 
safely have a lighter trigger pull than the Remington 700, but the Remington 700 allows you to have less take up in the trigger. Well, if you consider that trigger safety take up, which um, honestly, the the AccuTriggers and stuff that I've shot, you don't really notice that trigger safety too much. Um, the there, There's a reason that Remington uses aftermarket triggers on their rifles when they sell them. Um, and that's because I don't know that they've ever gotten that down. Um, usually, I, I think when you buy a Remington now over the, off the shelf, it comes with a Timney trigger on it. Um, and Timneys, I think, for the most part, they're set about two and a half pounds. And, that, and that's not a bad trigger pull weight. <clears throat> but they're set there for that trigger mass. Um, they were tested at a certain height of drop. I think it's six feet. They drop them at six feet. And and if you go less than that two and a half pounds, then when it impacts, then the, the trigger itself has enough mass to actually trip the sear uh, and set it off if you're if you're too much under that two and a half pound mark, it's probably considerably less than two and a half pounds, but, um, you know, everybody's got to be a good example of that issue in the, uh, factory world is to go back and look at the, where the SIG 320 handgun had their issues, which that drop test was outside of the standard. Um, but it did, if, if it fell in a, in a perfect scenario, it could set the handgun off. Yeah, that was that would be a good indication. I think the fix for that was they uh, they put a trigger safety on it, right? They did. Yeah. So that that was how they do it. They just have once you have two different locking mechanisms that have different mass, then the likelihood of them both coming off at the same time is um, is almost nil because of physics. So um, yeah, the so you got. When you're looking at building this, and we're on a full custom rifle, uh, Timney makes the most options and stuff for Remington 700. Um, I like the jewel jewel triggers for the 700s. Uh, they they just feel nice. Um, the The one thing that makes a good trigger not a bad trigger, it doesn't have anything to do with pull weight. It has everything to do with uh, creep and just how gritty that trigger feels as it the parts inside there interact together. If you if you have a lot of creep in the trigger and there's a lot of false starts in there where the trigger gets hung up on something and then you apply a little more pressure and it slips past it, but you still haven't dropped the sear yet, that's going to be that that type of a, a rifle is going to be almost impossible to shoot well. Uh, and so what you're looking for is you want to have a little bit of take up and that's slack. So when you put your finger on the trigger and you start pulling, there's no resistance at all other than trigger return spring resistance. You'll pull back, you'll hit a wall. And then once that wall breaks off, the, sh- the shot fires. So you don't have any, any type of this, uh, elongated dwell time between the on the sear engagement where that sear is working off 
a quarter inch of material and the entire time there's all these jumps and starts in there where you think the gun's about to shoot and then it doesn't and then when you're when you least expect it well here it goes and you're climbing up off the rifle but it still decides to go off at that point um those are those are terrible triggers to have a, a good example of that is is go grab your mosin nagant and pull it out and cock that cock the firing pin and start pulling that trigger and you'll feel a lot of creep and grittiness in that in that trigger unless somebody's worked on it but those are notoriously terrible triggers and almost everybody owns one of those so you can go give that a shot and you'll feel if you pull that trigger real slow you'll feel it'll move real free and then it'll hit a wall and then it feels like you're climbing a mountain and you might have a few stops in there where you got to push a little harder and then you'll keep climbing your mountain and then eventually at some point in the near future you'll release the sear and the fire will go off not a big deal for a battle rifle because you're not doing that you're just pulling that trigger as fast as you can but when you're trying to shoot that for accuracy you want to have a you want the shot to surprise you, but you want to have a very good idea of when it's going to come. Um, you don't want to be so surprised that you're that you're wondering if you actually uh, cocked the firearm. And these are the subtle things you start to pick up on when you're doing that dry fire training. Oh, you'll feel it. Yeah, if you you pull a, a Mosin McDonald is how I was shown what a terrible trigger feels like. There are ways to clean them up. Believe me, there are ways to make a Mosin Nagant just a beautiful trigger. It's definitely doable. But if it, you bought it from Big Five 10 years ago and you haven't really done anything to it since then, you know, give that a feel because it'll show you what a bad trigger feels like. And then, and then you can really have a good idea of what a good trigger feels like. Um, a good trigger was described to me as you, you pull through the slack, you hit a wall, and then it breaks like a piece of ice like if you imagine a very thin icicle and you pulled on it and once you hit one pound of pressure on that icicle once it breaks it breaks all together there is no more there's no give at the beginning and nothing happens after once it breaks it's done and that's how the trigger should feel um I know. I I think. Did, did you ever put a uh, a Geisley trigger in your ARs? I did not. I actually run a Hyperfire uh, duty trigger, uh, those... which I really like. Um, it's a it's a hybrid trigger where you have a your normal trigger bow towards the top of the trigger, and it comes out to a flat blade at the bottom. Um, and that trigger was designed and it has about a three pound pull. Um, but you can get on the bottom part of that trigger and the flat blade and it feels lighter because you have that straight. And I mean, this, this is totally different. We will get into that in a second flat blade versus curved blade versus how it feels versus what it actually is. Right. So you, you feel a little more resistance in the curved part of the trigger than you do in the flat part of the trigger. Uh, it depends on the application. You get to actually choose between the two. And I like that trigger because versus a Geisley at $250, that trigger's 90 bucks. 
So, okay. So you you've you remember shooting my Geisley trigger? Yeah, I have. Okay, so that Geisley you had it was a two stage, um, which I think we're going to cover. But um, you had that first initial, the first stage. You pull through that, and then you had that loading point. But there was zero movement in that trigger until the the round broke. Once it once it snapped, that was it. It was done. There was no creep. There was nothing like that in that trigger. Um, and so that's that is would be an example if you have a Geisley handy. I know they're expensive, but if you have one handy, that's an example of a of a, a an excellent trigger. Um, and so, as as you're looking, you you want the same feel on your on your bolt guns. You don't want any creep in that trigger, and that that creep is what you're going to feel on the the Mosin Nagant. You're going to feel that that where it's creeping by on the sear because there was so much safety involved in that design. Um, that that's how they did that. They just had so much creep, and you've got this wall that you've got to climb. Another terrible example of triggers is the Springfield XDs. Um, they're, they're loaded. So when you pull the trigger, you've actually got to cock the sear farther. You've got the, the sear is shaped like a crescent moon on the firing pin. And so when you pull that thing over, you're pulling, you've actually got to fight the spring, the firing pin spring as you're pulling that and they've just got all this movement and it's just like mushy and it, you know, feels like you're pulling on a, on a baked potato or something because it just keeps going and it's just mushy and it, they're just terrible. Again, there's ways to fix all these, but these are just some things that you might be able to pull out of your safe and go, Oh, that, okay. Yeah, this is a bad trigger. And then this is a good trigger. So you kind of know what you're looking for when you pick up the firearm and you go, how is the trigger now you kind of know what you're looking for there so what is the difference between a single stage and a two stage so uh a single stage is a direct mechanical link between the trigger and the and the sear mechanism um and that is you uh, when you move the trigger you have a direct line, um, usually a bar that will move out of the way of the sear and release the shot. Um, the the uh, a two stage will usually have a secondary type of a engagement, and what you're doing is you're moving the trigger against the secondary engagement, which partially releases the sear and then once that partial release is done the triggers loaded onto the main sear that at which point you'll the shot will break so you're able it's almost like a set trigger on the old uh, black powder rifles and stuff like that um, it almost has more of a set trigger type of an action and so basically when the first stage would be like pulling your set trigger and then that second stage, they're able to get a very quick, clean, crisp break on that because that first stage is real long and it slowly removes 
uh, say 70% of your sear engagement. And then you'll hit a wall. Once you hit that wall, you know you're almost there. And then it's just a short little increase in pressure there, and that shot will break. So how light is too light? Well, for what? For walking in the woods, I'd say probably two, two and a half pounds. I would say no less than two pounds for hunting. Um, if you're going to shoot off a bench and you want just long-range shooting, then, uh, you know, knock yourself out. <laughs> it's however light you can get it where it doesn't shoot when you close the bolt. <laughs> Um, I know, I know. My dad, he's got some target rifles that are, uh, they're set at about ten ounces Ooh. on the on the trigger pull, and and uh, yeah, you don't you don't close the bolt until you're ready to shoot. And it, it, they've they never gone off on when you're on bolt close, but uh, if you look at the trigger real hard when you when the firearm's loaded, it'll go off, and so you just kind of don't make eye contact with the trigger until you're ready for it to go off and the whole point of the trigger pull weight i mean everybody says oh this makes the biggest difference it doesn't for one thing but when you're shooting at a thousand twelve hundred yards eight hundred well we'll say long range beyond 800 yards if you're pulling one pound of or two pounds of trigger weight on a eight pound rifle then you may be able to manipulate the point of impact of that rifle just because you're applying two pounds of weight to the trigger, um, which could push that shot one way or the other, depending on how you're pulling that trigger. So if you have a 10 ounce trigger and an eight pound rifle, you're a lot less likely to manipulate the point of impact downrange. And we can, what's that? Go ahead. Also, you don't want to be walking around the woods with a 10 ounce trigger where, you know, if, if you look at that thing too hard, it's going to go off because that's just not a, a safe situation. And so that, that two and a half pound mark, I, I'm really more about the three pound point for a hunting rifle. Um, and it, it works. If you have a, like I said earlier, the, the creep, the jerks and starts, that grittiness in the trigger is what's going to mess you up. If you have a trigger that feels the same every time you pull it, and it's you have a full stop and a clean break. You can shoot a fifteen pound trigger and do it very accurately. And you know we're talking the difference in application because hunting uh, one inch variance is not at at five hundred yards is not going to make the difference between. Uh, a clean kill or not, especially if, you know, you've done your part and we're talking, you might miss the heart and hit a lung, uh, but we're, we're still talking a dead animal very quickly. Uh, but when we're, and, and we're talking a, a rifle that probably weighs 12 pounds or less. Uh, but when we're talking 10 ounce triggers or lighter, you know, we're talking bench rests where the rifle could quite literally weigh 25 pounds. Uh, because that rifle is literally designed to sit on a bench and not move, um, and you're at that at that rate, you're you're eliminating every single portion of that except for load development is is the point of that like the bench rest shooting. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but 
no that that's that's absolutely right and most of those most of those rifles are designed for minimum human contact um they're set up where you get down yeah and you put the crosshairs on your target and then you let go of the gun and you reach around to the side and you touch the trigger and make it go off and then you look back through the scope and see where you hit they're those the bench rest is getting they're getting scored with micrometers for the smallest group yeah you're you're talking a, a win or a lose in a competition based on a thousandth of an inch that's right and so they try to remove 100 percent of human interaction to that firearm so that you cannot manipulate it you have a 35 pound gun and an eight ounce trigger pull and you just get everything set up and you look down there and you go all right I'm on target and then you just go blow real hard on that trigger and wherever it hits, that's where it hits. Um, Very minimal human interaction. This is not going to happen on an animal that's moving and bench rest. They're shooting a hundred yards, but they're shooting like uh, six, six bench rest, which is an extremely fast, extremely high BC bullet and they take their reloading press to the matches and they will adjust their loads right there before they have to shoot again they reload their next round and so they go well the temperature is no longer 68 degrees it's 72 degrees and now i need to go ahead and maybe pull one half of a grain weight out of my next load to be able to maintain my max deviation on velocity here. We're talking deep. deep. Yeah, those those guys, that's more of a reloading competition, I think. I mean, it, it part of it comes down to rifle building. A lot of those guys are, are putting together their own rifles are spending a lot of money to get those rifles put together. Um, and you'll see guys that'll shoot uh, 22 and long rifle bench rest. And, you know, that's that, and that eliminates the reloading aspect because you can't really reload rimfire rounds. Uh, not easily, anyway. So, but for the most part, that, that's all a, it's a reloading game. It's a reloading game, and I mean, like you do say, but but they're not buying uh, they're not buying Remington uh, Remington rim fires in a five hundred and fifty round pack from Walmart, though either. No, absolutely not. <laughs> they're they're spending a lot of money on those twenty two rounds. Sorry about that. <laughs> Lost it there for a second, Tyke. Yeah, I got a. I was getting a phone call. <laughs> Um. Um. Yeah. So I uh, threw me off. They're they're getting twenty two rounds that are reloaded just like you would if you were doing it yourself. Um. So, but yeah, that's a lot of money. That's a big money game. The bench rest is uh, that kind of accuracy and stuff. They're paying a lot for it. So. Before we dive into this next 
portion of this. Let's take a quick break, grab a couple more beers. I mean, we are just over about a third of the way through the material we have in front of us to go over tonight. So let's take a quick break. Now's your chance to hit the pause button, whatever you do, whatever you need to do. That's what we're going to do for a second. And we'll be right back with you. All right. So stocks versus chassis. Picking the right stock versus chassis system. All right. Well, so majority of your chassis systems are going to be a little bit heavier. Um, and so if you're, if you're planning a hunt where you're going to be able to ride most of the way, take a quad in, you're going to set up on a hill, you're going to glass the entire day, and then you're going to ride your four-wheeler back out. Um, it would be a very good choice because the, the chassis is they're made, usually made out of aluminum, and they're going to be very stiff. You're not going to have any give at all in these chassis systems. You're going to pay for that with dollars, and you're going to pay for that with sweat because it's going to cost a lot more. Generally, there are some some uh, wood stocks there on the market that uh, are going to they're going to cost you a lot, quite a bit of money there too. But um, when when you're looking at the stock versus chassis, uh, you're going to consider weight you're going to consider the maneuverability you're going to have um you're going to sacrifice accuracy for the ability to carry your stock um and you're going to look at a little bit of extra weight on a chassis versus a stock now most of your chassis are going to have a grip on them akin to the AR style um, grip on there which is going to be fairly vertical compared to your standard hunting stock a a vertical pommel or grip on a rifle stock is designed for shooting prone laying on your belly getting behind the rifle and shooting behind a very vertical grip stocker chassis. Um, the reason you have most of the hunting stocks have a swept pommel, which is it kind of comes back. It's, it's tilted back a little bit. That's more designed for shooting offhand while you're standing up. And then you kind of get one right there in the middle that's swept back some, um, but not all the way swept back like the the uh the old Remington stocks used to be you'll have it it'll be swept back but it'll kind of curl back forward um, so you have a little bit more there to hang on and it it kind of works well in offhand shooting or prone shooting um but not the best for either one and if you think about laying down behind a gun the the angle your wrist is at when you contact that grip you're going to have more of a vertical vertical angle because you're reaching out over your head. Um, and when you're standing, your shoulders and your elbows are going to be down by your side. And so you're going to want that little more sweep on that, on that pommel than what you would normally want for being prone. So a good example of that in between you were talking about is the mag pull 
stock, it, it kind of falls right there in between the, the straight vertical grip versus that real swept back grip you see on a lot of um, hunting rifles you would pick up from the gun store. Yeah, it's a, it sweeps back for a certain amount, but then it kind of really drops off sharply and comes down. Um, some of those prone only tiles style stocks would be uh, uh, what is? <clears throat> I can't come up with anything right now. There's there's just a lot of them. There are some, there are stocks that are that way, and I I can think of one particularly in my head. But I, I can't think of the name of it, nor if I could, could I pronounce it? Uh, yeah, that, that's kind of what I'm thinking about. Um, I'm sure it is. I, I just can't remember what I'm what it is. Um, yeah, and the, so there's some of them that almost look like a like they got a pistol grip with a stock right. sticking out the back. And um, yeah, those are those are more designed for for uh, prone prone type shooting um you you kind of touched on it there a little bit but your difference in a stock and a chassis maneuverability versus um actors yeah so so kind of like we we were talking about a little bit ago with the bench rest stuff you got a 30 pound if you got a 30 pound rifle uh your Two pound trigger is going to make have less effect on the point of impact than a uh, on a nine pound rifle. So, um, with with the chassis, what you end up with is a lot of you end up with more weight because of the materials they're made out of. And so, uh, you if you if you to lug that weight there. Losing you a little bit before even building a, um, or if you're going to say you're going on a wilderness trip where you're going to backpack in and you're going to put that rifle in a uh, rifle carrying pack and you're going to pack it in there, and you're going to set up a tent, and you're going to stay for five days, and you're going to stay within uh, maybe a half a mile from where your tent is, and that's the area you're hunting, you can get away with a little bit heavier firearm in there. And and realize the gains of accuracy you're going to get out of a heavier firearm, um, because you're you're not necessarily trying to pack this thing, you know, five miles a day every day while you're out there on a hunt. So let's talk about the advantages of having an adjustable stock versus a a non adjustable stock. Advantages and disadvantages. Okay, well, a, a non-adjustable stock, if you get one that's fit to you, uh, will shoot just as well as uh, as an adjustable stock. The adjustable stocks, you're going to end up with a little more weight on them. Um, you know, for obvious reasons, you got all that extra hardware that's got to be able to, to lock into place and move things around. Um, so that's going to give you a little more weight. But you can fit that firearm to you you can fit it to your son as he starts coming up and be able to shoot and so you just have that single purchase that's going to work you know kind of across the board and it it just makes that that heirloom rifle to the point where somebody's not necessarily going to have to spend a bunch of money to shoot themselves when you hand it down Um, an adjustable stock 
and they're generally going to cost a little bit more and uh, they're going to weigh a little bit more but you you know buy once cry once on those because it's it's not going to be necessary then again for you to hand that rifle down for to get stock adjustments done so that it fits uh whoever's going to be shooting that rifle after you and we talk you know you talk about handing it down but also when you think about that too you can think about restale uh, because i've seen those full custom stocks on the used gun rack at the local gun store and they're to me they're they're virtually useless because they were they're not fitted to me um <clears throat> but if it was an adjustable stock i could change all those things to make it fit to me uh versus who it was designed to fit yeah with without a huge i mean i guess you could if you saw some you know really if you had something with a really nice action and barrel sitting there with a stock that didn't fit and you and you're looking at um you know what's it going to cost to buy just a a boyd's or whatever and just throw it on there so you've got a, now you're going to have a very nice action barrel very accurate system and you can throw a boyd's on there and and you're hunting you know and within two weeks um and then as you want you can maybe look at going into a chassis or a more of a custom style stock from there um and so I wouldn't let that scare anybody from maybe purchasing one of those custom rifles off the shelf, but it does. Yeah. That, that stock's not going to fit everybody because it was designed for whoever commissioned the build on that rifle. I'll say this to that point of all the time I've spent in the gun store and various gun stores throughout my life. Uh, Cause I do very much enjoy gun stores and firearms. I have only seen two full custom rifle stocks on the shelf. And those, they were in the same day at the same place. And they were both the same rifle, just in two different companies. So the chances of that speaks to keeping that custom rifle in the, in the family line, handing it down to the next generation and, and, you know, one after the other. Those guns don't go anywhere for the most part. No, we, where you you normally see those things for sale is when someone's come on hard times. It's a it's a fast way for them to liquidate some assets because that's what we're talking about here. These are these rifles that we're talking about building is they're going to be an asset and they're going to be you know considered along with your car as far as or your mortgage with with uh, you know what what your net worth is. Uh, yeah, those are things you think about when you're looking at insurance writers. Yeah. Um, and, and so it's just it's a, a consideration to make. And if you're going to put this kind of money out, even if you want a traditional style stock, not necessarily a chassis, um, maybe think about having something that's got an adjustable length of pull and an adjustable comb. Um, if you're a lefty or you're you know got your your cross dominant or something like that um and you got to get one of these wacky looking uh stocks on there or something like that maybe keep the one that came on there or or when you get ready to offload it put a cheap hogue on there or something because it's gonna uh, that rifle is gonna move with a with a cheap standard hogue and just a and and a kick-ass action barrel and scope 
a whole lot faster than it's going to move with your thousand dollar left hand or cross dominant stock on there because nobody wants that or 90 percent of the population doesn't um you just you're setting yourself up to a very specific subset of the population that wants a cross dominant uh yeah. stock or something weird like that if you're left-handed you're already hurting your resale value anyway so yeah don't buy a left-handed rifle learn to shoot a right-handed rifle <laughs> i mean no, i know we're talking about a full custom so this is the idea that you get what you want right right uh, um and so if, if if you want a left-handed, I mean, we're not talking resale, I guess, is not really the main point here because... No, it's not at all. The idea is that you're not going to sell it. Just make sure you have left-handed kid. <laughs> yeah, the idea is that uh, even when you hit hard times, that rifle is still there to provide food for the dinner table. Yeah, yeah, that that's exactly right. Um, so... High-end optics. What sets them apart from... And even that, that's kind of hard to say because, you know, you have a lot of people that, that think $600 is a lot to spend on a scope. <laughs> but I would not. $600, you're, you're barely touching into the bottom end of, I, I would really say, mid-tier. Yeah, Although I don't with, even know that that would be... With today's technology and the scope manufacturers out there, $600 could get you a solid mid-tier scope. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I don't even know if I'd call that. I would say your mid-tier are going to be... That's going to get you high bottom tier. Um, I, I think your mid-tier scopes are, are going to be your vipers and stuff like that's at about the the two thousand dollar range um and your high ends are going to be u.s optics and schmidt bender stuff like that i uh i looked through a schmidt and bender once uh you were with me actually we stopped oh. looked through it through a piece of glass that it was behind <laughs> uh i believe we were we were headed south from from Fort Campbell down to Georgia when we stopped at the, the gun store off of 75. Yeah. Yeah. I remember looking through one. I've, I've never owned one myself, but, uh, oh, they're, they are just beautiful pieces of glass and it's hard to explain. Um, and until you've actually, if you've got a, uh, a thousand dollar, scope sitting there and you're looking through it and you compare that to your $200 scope that came on the rifle you bought as a combo you're going to be able to tell that difference and it's just going to be like I don't know how anything can get better than this than this $1000 scope until you look through a $5000 scope and you go it can get better and it's really hard to quantify in words what that is um, and, and until you see it. And then you go, okay, this is, this is clarity. And it just makes me wonder in, you know, what, what's going to make a, a Schmidt Bender or U.S. Optics? What, what's the next scope that's going to come out and we're going to go, well, now this is better than that. 
you know, it, I would say the cheapest way to understand the difference in optics quality is to pick up your kid's BB gun and look through the scope that came with that and go grab your $300 Vortex and look through that scope. That's the difference you're going to see. Those are the differences you're going to see in that $300 Vortex and that four to $6,000 optic. Uh, absolutely. Um, the, and it, it really, it is clarity and your four to $600 scope works great to 500 yards. You can, you have full clarity. You can really see the target. You have no problems shooting that scope out to 500 yards. When you start talking about shooting a mile, that's where you're going to notice the, the degradation of clarity in that optic. So what role do scopes play in the accuracy that high end scope versus your mid to low tier scope? Well, your high end scope, you can't hit what you can't see. And so that's the number one. I think you get those high end scopes where you have just, incredible clarity at range and you can see your target um, another thing is you'll have very positive tracking on the scope adjustments and and a lot of them are going to be drop uh, shock proof so you can drop them and they're not going to lose zero or shift or anything like that because they have very robust positive adjustments on the turrets and stuff like that. So they're not going to just get knocked off of zero very easily. Um, and, and that I think those are the two, two big differences right there is, is their ability to take an impact, their ability to maintain clarity um, over when the weather changes. Um, I don't know if you've, you've noticed you go out and it's cold in the morning or it's you move from a hot environment to a cold environment you get fogging going on and some of the higher end optics even even your mid-grade and and high low grade optics um, they don't have any oxygen in them to create condensation Uh, they're they're purged with something without condensation and so you don't actually have to deal with that um, but that'll be a big difference, like between your your kid's BB gun scope and your four hundred dollar rifle scope. You you put that thing in a warm room, take it out into a cold morning, and uh, and it'll fog right up, and you're gonna fight with it the entire day. Um, your higher end optics are not gonna do that. They're not gonna be as as prone to um, a point of impact shift based upon how hot or cold it is outside. I guess I, I just uh, skipped all the way around that point, and that is, I guess, the, the main point there is that they're not going to be as prone to point of impact shift over extreme variations in temperature. So I think one thing that gets overlooked a lot in, in rifles in general is scope rings. Um, you just think that I can buy this, they fit, put it on there. All it does, I mean... Really, I mean, all it does is hold the scope on there, right? 
<laughs> yeah, that is that is all it does. Um, if if you have scope rings that are that are not true to one another, it will it'll still hold the scope on there, but it'll hold it on there bent. It'll actually bend the the scope body, and and then you look. It's like looking through a a piece of PVC pipe, you know, a ten foot piece of PVC pipe. You're not looking straight through there and seeing a perfect circle on the other end. You've got kind of this half moon or crescent shape down there because the pipe is bent. Um, that's a, an extreme example. But when we're talking extreme accuracy, um, that's what that's what we're looking at. And so um, the scope rings either need to be matched, lapped from the factory. It's, it's worth it to spend $150 on your scope ring um and or you spend 150 dollars to have somebody lap your scope rings so that you have that the the circle in the rings that hold the scope are perfectly consent concentric with each other um, there is no variation on the centers of those rings between the rings themselves a lot of scope manufacturers and ring manufacturers are getting to the point where they match rings before they send them out and your high-end rings are going to be matched when you buy them uh, the cheaper ones if they're not matched you need to you need to get those lapped because they they'll still hold the scope on there but you'll never see the accuracy that you'll see with a set of rings that have been lapped and trued to one another um, or matched at, from the factory. But, you know, lapping scope rings uh, yourself is not something that is beyond the scope of ability to someone who's come this far. No, absolutely not. It's, it's fairly easy. It's not, and I don't, I don't know what the tool costs, but it's not very much. You can buy it on Brownells, and we're talking, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but some lapping compound and a dowel rod plus the tool. Yeah, if you can find if you can find a dowel rod that's that's the correct diameter for your scope tube, um, yeah, you could you could use that. But but a dowel rod's not going to to uh, stay true like like a piece of uh, machine carbon steel or something is going to to stay true. That dowel rod has the potential of of bending as you apply the pressure when you're lapping and stuff like that. So I'd stay away from the dowel rods, and I, I think that lapping tool is. 40 50 bucks or probably not even that much i don't even know what they are and i say this um, to say that you you have when you look at your average low end scope you're looking at a one inch uh tube diameter um, a lot of your mid-tier scopes are 30 millimeters which is a little bit bigger and then when you talk you're talking serious high-end serious long range you're looking at 34 millimeter scope rings which in and of themselves are not cheap because the scopes in and of themselves are not cheap so i i would say it's probably safe to assume if you're buying 34 millimeter scope rings that they probably shouldn't need lapping yeah you, what you're looking at there is that they're probably going to be your low your low grade your your 200 to $600 optics 
are the ones that you're most likely to be able to find rings for that are not matched. And when you're looking and you're buying rings and you have one set that costs $135 and you have one set that costs $65, the difference between those two is going to be the fact that they're true to one another. Um, it, it, I've always just bought pre-trued rings because it's never penciled out cost-wise to buy the tool. Um, and generally the better rings, the ones that have more, more, um, points where, where you have the fasteners go through. So you have rings that have a single fastener machine screw on each side. And then you have rings that will have two fasteners on each side and you have scopes that will have three fasteners on each side and the more fasteners you get the more surface area of those rings make contact with the scope tube and the more surface area you have on the scope tube the left the less that scope is going to shift under recoil so something too that as we get into these scope rings and you know i can't believe we haven't touched on this in either of the previous podcasts, but factory torque specs and an inch-pound screwdriver go a long way. I think we did cover that in the very first one, uh, what, 13 or 14. Um, but, yeah, make sure that, that you're keeping those things uh, the the torque specs, so the scopes and the rings are going to come with torque specs on them, and you just make sure that that you maintain factory torque spec on those, and it should be something you check every time you take the rifle out. Um, you just have that there, you throw it up on the in the vise on the bench or whatever, and you just make sure the scope is torqued because they will loosen up. Loctite does a little bit, but not everything. Um, it, it doesn't take that long. It's 30 seconds. You've made sure that you've got the proper torque on there. You, If you over-torque them or if you have the front ring is torqued more than the back ring or the uh, the front mount where it attaches to the the rail or your scope mount, if that if the front one's torqued more than the back one, it's going to push that. that it's going to give you a point of impact shift because you have uneven pressures applied across those rings which is going to move the the point of impact there on the on the scope down range so before we before we get into the knee high and above weeds and we move away from the rifle itself let's just jump on the advantages and disadvantages of a box fed magazine versus a hinged floor plate uh and the difference w- would be like a detachable magazine versus uh, a, a magazine that doesn't leak the rifle. Yeah, so um, a magazine is defined ultimately as a place where ammunition is kept. Um, knowing that, you have two magazines on your lever guns some 22 bolts had a tube magazine that was a magazine that ran under the barrel um most of your hunting rifles and a lot of the world war one world war two era battle rifles were a hinged floor plate 
up until about, I would say, the early 2000s when you started seeing hunting rifles were coming out where they had detachable box, box magazines akin to the the AR platform rifles and, and modern battle, battle rifles. The I would say the main advantage is going to be your reload speed. Um, but if you've shot at an animal more than five times, which is general, generally the capacity of a of a floor plate style magazine. If, if you've shot more than five times with an animal, maybe it's, it's time to get closer. Um, and, and I don't know that you really need rapid reloads. Now, if you're doing like PRS competition and stuff like that, yeah, it's worth it. Cause you're, you're being timed on all that stuff. And so you need to be able to get that gun going pretty fast in that situation. But for hunting, I think a detachable box magazine is going to prove to be more cumbersome and get snagged on everything you don't want it to uh, than just a, a standard flush bottom type of a, a rifle stock where, where you don't have anything stuck out the bottom. Uh, when you have that detachable box magazine, it's going to get caught up on your on your pack, on the bushes, on anything that you come in contact with. It's just one more thing. You know, you're, you're barely eking through with the barrel managing that and your scope. And then now you got this box magazine stuck out the bottom, um, that you've also got to work through the brush and stuff like that. And so I think generally for hunting, you're going to want to use a hinge floor plate or, uh, you know, a, a flush magazine. And then, uh, for your competition or just target shooting, or if you're going to set this rifle up on a hill and you're going to glass, um, then you go ahead with the box magazine at that point. Um, and so that's, that's why I think are the going to be your major advantages and disadvantages. You're going to pay more to have that detachable magazine also. And uh, you just really need to consider whether that's a, a cost you need to expend or whether you, that's something that you want because you think it looks cool. So, which I guess that's another advantage of a box magazine or detachable is it does look cooler. I mean, that, that's also, that's, that's always a factor. Yeah. That's like 80% of the whole thing right there. So, <laughs> so we're now going to step away from the rifle and the optics and all that itself. And we're going to go, we're, we're going to focus on the bullet. Uh, we're going to talk about reloading for accuracy, extreme accuracy. Okay. <laughs> so we this have gonna... now surpassed the knee-high mark of weeds. Uh, I don't even know where to start. All right. Well, uh, I guess we'll start in... Uh... So, I mean, last week we talked about ladder loads. So, this week, let's get into the nitty-gritty, the nitpicky of the ladder loads. Okay, the nitpicky of ladder loads. So, I think uh, I think last week we kind of covered what a ladder load is and how you go about establishing a – basically establishing a powder charge weight for that, that is suitable for your rifle. Um, 
we're going to kind of go into how to how to use ladder loads to experiment with different powders primers and and projectiles and uh, and also case volumes and so i guess i guess as we move along through here and we talk about your your uh you know powder selection burn rates primer selection bullet selection um bullet shape and and all of that these are all things that you're going to develop into ladder loads as you really get nitpicky on your accuracy when it comes to uh reloading for extreme accuracy on this um because you'll find that um 30 30 grains of uh h4350 will shoot the best with a certain uh primer case and bullet combination and until you change that bullet and now you, there's a different powder out there that works better for that uh, the biggest thing on reloading and really getting into brass tacks as far as um, how how to maximize the accuracy of of your hand-loaded rounds is is keeping data so you I, I think last week we said just you know if you're going to load for your um sort of large long action cartridges just go get some start with a uh h4350 and just start there it's a good kicking off place uh, it works well across a broad range of different loadings so you go you shoot that pound and maybe it works very well while you're working through those rounds that you loaded with that pound of 4350 Go go buy a different powder that your recipe book calls for and start doing ladder loads with that on the side and maintain data separately for each of these two powders. Now, you're still shooting the same case, same primer, same bullet, but you're experimenting with other powders. So you go through, say, uh, 10 different types of powder with different burn rates, uh, and you still find H4350 works. But now I want to mess with... Uh, bullet shape so you go and you pick a new bullet now you're going to go through and you're going to do the same process except you have data on the best loading the best grain weight of powder by powder for each cartridge you're shooting and now you're going to do the same thing but with different bullet shapes and so you go through and you do the same thing there and then you can do the same thing with bullet grain weight. Um, when you do this, you'll pick your best loading from each powder category. And you'll keep that in the middle. And then load maybe two grains below that in sequence of about a half a grain down. And in sequence of about a half a grain up from your most accurate loading from that powder before with a different shape bullet. Um, uh, you can also experiment with your different case manufacturers. So once you've kind of narrowed down onto a powder and bullet combination, now you can start doing different. You can buy lots of 20 brass cases, um, load those up 
in ladder sequence using your different powders and bullet shapes and weights. Uh, you can experiment with primers. And, and I think that's, I think that's about it. Um, and so you start seeing that, that when you have 10 different powders and we're going to just make math easy, but you have 10 different powders, 10 different case manufacturers and 10 different bullet styles and 10 different bullet grain weights, you have roughly a million individual combinations you can come up with or somewhere in there, half a million, something like that. Easily. Um, yeah. And, so, you know, I mean, I, we've got a lot on reloading to cover. And I, I, I think that we could easily do an entire podcast at an hour's length or more on reloading. Um, because it, I mean, you could go in just as deep into the weeds on reloading as you could building a rifle. Uh, oh, he's probably deeper because there's yeah. you have so many different combinations. There's so many different powders, so many different primers, so many different bullets, and so many different um, powder volumes and bullet weights and shapes and cases and case volumes. Uh, yeah seating depth well we'll get into that a little bit but when when you're starting to look at ladder loads here what you want to do is when you're starting to be nitpicky on reloading pick a component one component so uh, establish a good load with your initial component list that you've established once you have that good load established then pick one of those components and start experimenting with it until you achieve the best accuracy or or eliminate it as a possibility and then pick another component and you're going to do the same thing as those ladder loads where you're just going to try different velocities all the way up and you're going to try different grain weight bullets so you keep the same powder charge but you adjust your bullet weight and so there's just, there's a million different combinations there. And it's just pick one component, focus on that. And then when you start saying, oh, this bullet's outperforming the bullet I had previously, um, then go back and revisit the powder selection until you achieve and just see. It might be the powder and that bullet are going to outperform, you know, this other powder with the previous best bullet in there. And so you can kind of, but once you get something that's achieving greater accuracy than something you had before, then you got to go back and run those powder ladder loads again to make sure that you're, you're maximizing the potential of that new load. Um, and that's why a lot of reloaders, that's what they are. They're reloaders. They're not shooters. They're not, they're not hunters. They're, they're reloaders. And that's what interests them. And, and uh, I can't fault them for that anymore. And I can fault somebody for just wanting to go out and, and turn money into smoke. You, uh, you could easily on a, on a working man, uh, uh, on a 40 hour work week could easily spend a decade trying to find that perfect combination. Oh, easily. Yeah. You can make it your life's work and probably never get there, but you'll hit on the best of what you've come up against so far. Right. And that's what you need to use 
at that point. But then in the off season, you're not hunting. You can go and you can play with these different little tweaks you've got there and maybe try to improve it. Maybe you don't get better. But then the best thing you best load you have to date is what you're using in the field. So what is bullet jump? So um, Sammy specifications require a certain um, seating depth on a bullet when you buy it off of the shelf. Not all chambers are cut for that exact dimension, um, and they and they you won't find them. Usually, the chamber is going to be a little bit oversized for safety reasons. Um, what so what you can do is what happens when that bullet exits the casing. There's a certain amount of distance it has to travel before it engages the rifling on the barrel. And what, what you want to do is eliminate that. Now, for a hunting rifle, most of the time, if you're going to load those bullets out far enough where they're engaging the lands before, you know, as you are locking the chamber, they're probably going to be too long to fit in the magazine because the mag- magazine's not designed for that. Um, but what it does is it ensures that when the bullet engages those lands and grooves in the rifling, that it does it concentrically to the bore. It doesn't have any time to, for the, for the, uh, tail of the bullet to start trying to get in front of the nose of the bullet. Um, you look at a bullet shape, the back of the bullet is going to be heavier than the front because it's full diameter where the front is not. And so, um, it's going to want to try and move around to the side and they can sometimes engage the rifling at a little bit of an angle. Well, what that means is when that bullet exits into the free air, the the forces applied by the atmosphere are not equal around the entire diameter of the bullet. And you're going to end up with, with a certain amount of uh, erratic behavior from that bullet when it leaves in, in external ballistic situations. Uh, so, to re- so to reduce that, you you set your loading length a little bit longer. You you don't seat the bullet as deep, and and then when you close that action, you have full engagement on on the lands and grooves of the bullet before you pull the trigger. So before we go into chest high to over the head weeds let's take another break and we'll be right back with you alright so we're still talking about reloading and for the most part you're looking at, at bullets available factory off of the shelf so you only have a limited amount of grain weights uh, available to you although they are fairly vast but let's talk about swaging well swaging is a very interesting um, aspect of reloading Uh, basically it's like a a reloading press on steroids and what you do is you buy like a, a copper case and then you buy lead slugs and you you're essentially are using a lot of pressure through mechanical advantage 
to force a certain amount of lead into a copper casing and turn it into the shape that you want that bullet to be. Um, why this is so interesting is because theoretically you would be able to make a 142 grain, 264 thousandths inch diameter bullet to, for shooting out of your six, five. Now your standard weights are going to be 140, um, and you know maybe what 146 or something like that but you would actually be able to completely maximize and fine-tune your bullet grain weight to see the utmost performance out of a given caliber because you can make these grain weight bullets that nobody makes and you can make them tailor made for your rifle uh, this adds another, a, a whole nother element to your ladder load, uh, nitpicky stuff, because once you go through all the factory stuff, you can get into swaging and you can go grain by grain weight on bullet to really dial in what that rifle wants as far as a, a loading. Um, it's, I, I, when I was in school, I did a, uh, had to write a paper on it and it was just the, the amount of possibilities that come available with swaging bullets are just phenomenal. And, and to think about the amount that you could do, um, with Taylor making a load for a given rifle is, it was blowing my mind wide open because, uh, I it was kind of hard for me to wrap my head around the different number of combinations that you could try um, in order to make that load for that rifle. You'd almost need some sort of a, an algorithm or something where you could put in, you know, your your grain weight for 140 and and or your performance at 140 grains and your performance at 150 grains, and then have something like spit out a thing that says, well, this velocity and and uh, at this grain weight, you're going to see a better potential. And so then you could go in and actually start trying right around there, one or two grains above that bullet weight. Uh, but every grain weight on that bullet is going to make a point of impact shift. Um, yeah, so that that is an option. And if, you know, if you don't really have anything, you're not married, you don't have kids, uh, you don't have a job, uh, <laughs> you know, then then by all means or or you do nothing other than than practice reloading um swaging is available as a hobby but you know i'll say this you say that i'll i'll say this to that point too um if you're in that place where you don't have a job you you could literally make a living swaging if you could find that create that algorithm and find that sweet spot uh, to produce those rounds. There is a market for that. There, well, there's a market for those bullets. You don't even have to produce the rounds um, to right. so to, to load and sell ammunition. You need an FFL for that. To swage bullets and sell them to bench rest shooters, you do not, because the bench rest shooters are going to want to load, but they want a bullet that weighs a hundred and 46 grains and they can't buy them you can make them a bullet that weighs 146 grains 
And now they've got something that's going to give them another 10,000th of an inch accuracy over the competition. And they are willing to pay for that a lot. So another way you can, you can gain that uh, with a whole lot more equipment is, is turned solids. And that's a big thing out there where, where you're at in California, uh, moving away from lead. Yeah, it is. Uh, turn solids have been around for a long time, though. Uh, they were always, they've been generally regarded as the most accurate bullet. Because you're not ending up with any imperfections in bonding um, the case to the lead or um, densities in lead or densities in copper. Uh, you can only get lead density and copper density so close um, as far as you know, parts per million across the certain sheet of copper. You're only going to get the density is only going to be so close across that thing. Uh, where you end up with something that's got more more density in that copper, you're going to have a heavy side to that bullet. Yes, it might be, you know, a 140 grain bullet. You might have one grain that's at at one point on there where it's off center across the whole concent- concentricity of that bullet. But that's going to cause a point of impact chip downrange. Turn solids have a much more uniform density across the entire cross section of that bullet. Um, And while most of them are alloys and you're not going to have perfect density, you will have a, a, a less of a one sided density shift. If you're turning a, a 284 bullet out of 290 stock, you're you're going to have just much less of a variation in density from one side of that bullet to the other um, because you're you're turning it on the center to the point where you're removing any of that those um, imperfections and stuff off the outside of that Uh, when they draw so when they draw like brass and copper and stuff through a mandrel those heavier parts um, they get pushed around a lot in there and, um, the, the turn, turn bullets are going to take a lot of that stuff off and what they usually, you can see that happening when you're turning them, you'll go, you can feel it in the tooling and you go this, this point right here on this, on this particular bullet has, you know, uh, is, is more or less dense based on how the, the lathe is cutting, um, and and so you have the capability to be able to take those and and toss them to the side and smelt them and and start again on those bullets. Um, and so you have a really good idea. There's a lot of control there, uh, a lot more, yeah, just a lot of control with the manufacturer. They can they can look at those and they can feel that stuff and they can look at the curls that are coming off when they're turning those, and then go these are we need to throw these out because you're going to have these imperfections where if you're just smashing lead into copper, you're never going to see those come up. So did I get that all right? I I feel like I was talking in circles there trying to find the words for that one. You did I cover that one? Okay. I mean, I think that was, that was pretty good. And I, 
man, you know, for the sake of not turning this into a four hour episode. Yeah, we need to keep on it here. <laughs> I, I, I'm going to I'm actually going to go ahead and, and step away from reloading. I mean, we have a we have an outline in front of us and probably it, it's two pages, but a, you could turn a, a almost an entire page into just the reloading portion of this episode. Okay, well let's let's just we'll touch real fast on max deviation, define it and and how to get rid of it. Yeah, uh, you go back through that portion and and touch on what we think we need to touch on and then let's move on from there. All right, so max deviation is going to make the most difference single-handedly in your point of impact downrange. And max deviation is when you shoot the bullet through a chronograph, it's your the how much that bullet changes velocity over a ten shot group. Um, if you can push that down to about seven, that's considered really good. Seven feet per second over ten rounds, you're not gonna see a whole lot of shift down there. So, the way that you will reduce that is you are going to separate your bullets by weight so yeah you buy a 140 grain bullet you put every single one of them on the scale and you put them into groups based on which they weigh the same as because you'll have maybe a a deviation in bullet weight of of one grain so you might have some in there 141 you might have some in there 139 and so you just separate all these bullets into their own groups based on their specific bullet weight actual weight on a scale um and then your case volume by water uh, we talked about it a little bit last week and this is where you fill the case up with water and then you weigh that water um the way you do this is you use a syringe and you squirt it in there so you don't have any surface tension you get a level fill surface tension is gravity's way of keeping water in a bubble um, and so you fill it up so you have a level fill, no surface tension, and then you weigh that water that comes out of the case. And that'll tell you the case volume by weight of water. And then you separate the cases into lots based on their case volume by weight of water. Um, and this, that's probably the best way to decrease your max deviation is to really, I mean, that's pretty nitpicky right there, but it will decrease that max deviation and so you start finding one that's um you can shoot all these cases as long as they're all together and so you put uh, you know more case volume with the heavier bullets and less case volume with the lighter bullets and you load them all the same you're going to really cut that max deviation down a lot Um, and so that's that's going to take your point of impact from one minute to a half a minute. So we briefly touched on this last week. Um, but we'll get a little deeper into it now. It, it, the question is, is, is why are wildcat rounds so important? And to some degree, every round we see as common today 
started as a wildcat. Yeah, at some point it was. Um, almost all of them. Yeah, before you had Sammy, you didn't have wildcats, but uh, yeah, all the modern, all these modern cartridges are developed as a wildcat, and that is literally some guy that can reload and he takes a he'll take a 30-06 case and he he reams that reloading die out to the point where the case doesn't get touched but he'll take so he'll take like a a 243 case or reloading die and then he'll put that on the lathe and he'll cut it out so the only part that contacts that 30-06 case is is the neck where the bullet goes. And so he'll put that case in there and he'll push that neck down on that 30-06 case to fit a 243 bullet. And then they've got these different there's there's places out there that sell whatever you you just tell them, "Hey, I want a chamber reamer that's going to do this." And and you pay for it a lot of money, but they'll make it for you. Um, and then you'll take a 243 barrel and you cut that chamber out to fit a 30 out six case. Now you have a wildcat. You have a um, ot six six millimeter or whatever. <laughs> I don't know if there's even one. What is it? A six millimeter ot six. A, a six ot six. All right. So, and then. This guy starts in there, and he'll he'll look at your two forty three loads and your thirty out six loads, and you start trying to figure out. Okay, we're going to start real low on here, on this range of loads, and and then you kind of work up from there. And now you are developing a wildcat round. Um, there are a million out there. Like I didn't even know if a six out six was a was a thing. Apparently. It exists. I don't know if it is either, but I'm going to say that that would probably be what you would call it, unless you wanted to call it a six millimeter Johnson or a, the last name, which is fairly common in your wildcat rounds. You're going to give it whatever your bullet diameter is, plus your last name or plus whatever crazy name you want to add to it. Yeah, well, all the Ackleys. I mean, uh, that that was Ackley that came up with those as his last name, and yeah, a lot of them that's your last name and. And, and but a lot of them you'll end up with like a, a combination of your your bullet diameter and parent case, uh, like your three thirty eight out six and stuff like that, which is uh, thirty out six necked up to fit a three thirty eight. Um, so these are all how wildcats wildcats are developed. It's some guy in his garage that's like. I want to give this, I wonder what this would do. And so he does it. Um, The reason that wildcats are important to firearms is they are what is pushing firearm manufacturers to push the limits of what they can do in their manufacturing plants. So you have a guy that does a a wildcat and it catches fire like um oh, there's been a few of them here lately that that just everybody was shooting them and you couldn't buy the rounds over the shelf 
but you had guys that were showing up at bench rest matches and they were just just knocking the socks off everybody because they had this load this cartridge that they developed themselves that was just outperforming anything else they were shooting um and so they start catching fire you know these guys start talking they all start shooting it they do the same thing this other guy did and then you manufacturers start to notice like well people people this is becoming mainstream people want this we need to figure out a way to make this safe to sell over the counter and so they start one of the biggest wildcats to catch on here uh in most recent history that has not necessarily caught on for accuracy uh but is the 300 blackout that started out as a wildcat uh, a, a 556 or a 223 necked up to a 30 caliber bullet um, and it caught on because it's it's quiet and running suppressed it runs well in a short barrel it you know the it, it met a criteria for DOD uh, and then it caught Sammy specs developed on from that and now you have it as a, a fairly common round to run in your ar-15 style rifle yeah and and that that's right so so i I guess just to say you know wild wildcat rounds push firearm manufacturers to increase the capability of their material and machining processes to handle the velocities and pressures that these wildcat developers are looking for um, a lot of wildcats like the 300 blackout i think went to lower pressure lower velocity and was not really a big deal as far as that goes but a lot of them what they're doing is they're taking these small bullets and they're pushing them at extremely high rates of speed well when that bullet comes out of the barrel and it's moving too fast it's just going to disintegrate so now the bullet manufacturer has got to go well this isn't working. We need to come up with something that's going to work. Um, and so then they go to the drawing board and they figure out a way to alloy and manufacture those bullets to be able to handle those extreme velocities. Okay, so now the the bullet's fine, but the chambers are only living through 10 rounds. So now the firearm manufacturers got to look at that and go, okay, well, how do we adjust our metallurgy to be able to handle this pressure and it's something that the population wants they're they're doing this a lot but they're burning barrels out like that and so we've got to figure out a way to make this a more viable solution for them and so they sit down at the drawing board and they figure that stuff out now this all happens almost concurrently you know this is all going on because they know that this is where bench rest is going they're going to this round or this is where PRS is going to go. They want to go to this round because everybody's moving over there, whether they're changing the barrel every hundred rounds or not. So their goal is to come out with a barrel slash bullet action combination that is going to be affordable enough and last long enough that these guys that are spending a lot of money on these guns that they want to start doing that instead of, I mean, if I had the option to change a barrel every 600 rounds versus every hundred rounds, I'm going to do that. Whether I've got a bottomless pit of money or not. 
So one of your wildcats, or was at one time a wildcat that relates better to our hunting aspect here, would be the one of the most common rounds across the board for hunting is is the two seventy. Um, that wasn't always there. That that was born from the thirty out six casing, uh, and somebody said I can make this go faster and shoot flatter. Yeah, that that's absolutely right, and it, and it, and that was one of the big. Um, that was one of the big innovations, uh, I think, in, in hunting bullets was that 270 because it caught on like wildfire. And and I don't know of a whole lot of people that are regular hunters that don't own one or at least, you know, maybe they've owned one in the past. Um, I, I feel one of the biggest deer I've ever shot was a 270. So they're there. Uh, I don't currently own one, but I'll probably buy another one. Um, and it's capable of taking game from white-tailed deer out to elk-sized game. It's Absolutely. a very capable. It, it is. It's a very capable round, and and you not dealing with a whole bunch of wind drift and and bullet drop like you did on the 30 out six, you know, you, that, that big 30 caliber bullets more prone to uh, getting pushed off by the wind and it's got more mass. So it's going to obviously fall. Uh, it's obviously going to fall faster due to the, the drag It's just bigger around. So you've got wind drag on it and that drag wind drag on a larger surface is going to slow that bullet down faster and it's going to drop faster. And we've seen even more advancements in the 270 because of the popular or the gaining popularity of the specialist, which is also that same 27 caliber bullet, but in a AR 15 platform. So you're shooting a lighter bullet. So you see guys taking those lighter bullets developed for the six, eight specialist, reloading those into the larger 270 round. You're getting higher velocities. The possibilities are endless. Yeah, they're loading those 115 grain six eight bullets into 270 cartridge, and and they're pushing the velocities up at 3,300 feet per second. I mean, that that baby's cooking. That yes, cooking is an understatement. Yeah, that's it, moving. So, I mean, we are we're barely peeking over the top of the weeds at this point. <laughs> Why is this rabbit hole bottomless? Well, I think no matter how hard we try, we could spend eight hours here. We will never, ever, ever reach the bottom of this rabbit hole. No, no, we we could just keep talking. I mean, we cut reloading short for time, you know, and that's, yeah, one of these days we'll just do a, uh, maybe do a reloading yeah, episode kind of that's, by itself. We need to revisit that because that is a big part of accuracy. Yeah, I mean, I think we skipped about half of the reloading stuff on here, more than half. Um, this it, this is a bottomless hole because things are constantly changing. And so you might reach, if the best way to reach the bottom of a given hole in, in firearms technology and accuracy is to pick maybe a, a caliber of a bullet. And then just stay with that. You might hit the bottom of a 30 caliber bullet eventually. I mean, you'll get there. Um, 
and and just eke every last bit of performance um, out of that out of that bullet. But probably about the time you do that, somebody's going to come out with a new bullet design, and then you'll you'll get a chance to start over. Um, the the firearms industry moves so rapidly and is so competitive that it will it will never end. Powder manufacturers are always changing their their recipes they use to make powder. Um, primer companies always changing the process that they use to make primers. Everything is always advancing in firearms, um, just because it's such a huge industry, especially in the United States, but worldwide. Um, it is what guarantees our freedoms as Americans on the battlefield and at home and people recognize that and they're constantly striving for the best weapon technology that they can field at any given time. Um, you know, if you think about if we were still shooting black powder rifles and, and, uh, Japan was, was into the smokeless powder age during the second world war, we'd all be speaking Japanese. And so we're in an arms race constantly. And as soon as one country or one group of people falls behind, um, they lose. And so that's why this is a a, a bottomless rabbit hole. And we got to come up with guns now that shoot in space. Space force. (laughs) Space force. I mean, that's, it's literally bottomless because now, we gotta figure out a way to shoot in space. How do you how do you protect space you know, and if you can't shoot? Even closer to home than space, we've reached a point now where we're looking at polymer cased ammunition, uh, just to reduce weight. Polymer cased or caseless ammunition entirely. And caseless ammunition is not a new thing by any by any means. This this is something that came about in the 60s or earlier uh, to reduce weight. You, you had experimental weapons of Vietnam that fired rockets. Yeah. Uh, many rockets. And they were great uh, at, at, dis- at, at distance, but not at close range because rockets need the ability to gain speed uh, that they don't gain in muzzle, like literal muzzle velocity. Um, they need speed to penetrate. Speed is king when it comes to penetration. Speed uh, is king. Uh, period. <laughs> speed is king with accuracy. It's just speed. Speed is king here. Um, when it comes when it comes to firearms and accuracy and lethality, uh, if you could if you could launch a a bullet that weighed two tons. At 3,000 feet per second, nobody is going to mess with you. But we've got physics, so. Um, but, yes, yeah, speed is king across the board. I, I mean, even if firearms technology ceased in its production, you would have science in and of itself that would discover a new alloy or be able to create a new alloy that would, again, change. If you could make a bullet out of space rock, 
that was more uniformed than anything we had here on Earth, you could gain accuracy that way. Absolutely, it's 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 um, accuracy is repeatability. Um, I guess your your speed and accuracy comes to the fact that the less that bullet's in the air, the less opportunity physics has to act upon that projectile. So speed is king in that sense. But if you had a a alloy, a space alloy, like you said, that is incredibly uniform, you you will increase accuracy due to uniformity and repeatability. Hypothetically speaking, banking a bullet out of a diamond, that's one of the most uniform things we can come up with here, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Be insanely, insanely expensive. Yeah, and it probably burns some barrels out pretty fast. Considering it is harder than steel. Yeah, but I mean, yeah, if you had something as uniform as a diamond or if you could make it out of um, smelted gold and it would stay together to where you had gold with a very high purity and that bullet would stay together, uh, you would be able to see improvements in accuracy there as well with its repeatability. It, it, It doesn't matter if you've got a BB gun where every single one of those BBs is a perfect sphere and weighed the exact same amount, you could have a highly accurate Red Rider. I'm going to start weighing out those Red Rider BBs. <laughs> well, they're not, they're not perfect spheres. Well, it's time, to, it's, time to, it's time we saw a change <laughs> in the firearm. <laughs> I agree. I agree. Let's, let's start getting these BBs in here as perfect spheres. <laughs> We couldn't do that though, uh, because you'd see too many uh, yard birds dead. Yeah, no, I got to be able to get my daughter Red Rider and make sure that she's only going to hit one out of ten. <laughs> Decimations of populations. Yeah, uh, for perfectly symmetrical Red Rider. <laughs> Just no more birds. <laughs> so, we we have reach the I, I would say reach the end of what we are going to cover this episode because we'll we we've already covered the fact we'll we will never reach the end we, we could come back a year from now and we will have advancements in firearms technology to where we could recover what we've already talked about that yeah that's that is correct and and I guess the whole point of this is to just, you know, impart a little bit of, of knowledge to the point that you, what you learned in 1995 is not still true today. And what we're talking about today may not still be true next year. Um, other than, you know, the physics and like the way that air reacts and all that stuff. But, the you know the i i know that we've been pretty adamant this through this whole thing that the you know the seven mag is probably the best over-the-counter hunting cartridge you can buy right now next year can i guarantee that's it nope we may have something that's 
way better than the seven mag that'll come out. And so it's just, you know, it's, it's such a, a rapidly changing industry. And, and if you are, if you're really into it and, and I guess, you know, if you've been here for, for the nine hours or whatever we've talked about, <coughs> talk about guns. Um, yeah, I guess it does interest you. And um, it, it's not something, it's not a one and done thing. It, it's something you constantly have to stay up on because it, it is just, it's moving at the speed of light. Well, that in and of itself is what makes it interesting. It's always changing. I mean, we've got guns now that don't even use gunpowder to fire. They, they use electromagnets. Oh, yeah. Uh, albeit they are very large and cumbersome. Uh, and not technically firearms. Technically. But they're there. Oh. And that's another advancement in firearms technology. So it's constantly going to change. It's gonna. It's only going to get better. We're not going to backpedal on. No, this. we're not going to go back to the to the black powder age. I'll tell you that. Uh, there's a reason when you look at hunting season that you ha- that that black powder is set apart from regular rifles because it's harder. There are advantages and disadvantages, and even in the black powder industry, there are there there's advancements that they're pushing the envelope of black powder. Uh, just this year, you've seen the Federal Fire Stick. It's a polymer cased charge of 100 and 120 grains with a primer pocket in the back. Uh, you would insert your primer, charge into the back of a brake action muzzleloader. The Traditions Nitro Fire is the one that's designed to run the the fire, the Federal Fire Stick, but it allows you to have the same charge weight over and over again, a more consistent in charge weight and a cleaner burning black powder. Yeah. Which it creates reliability, which creates accuracy or consistency, which creates accuracy. And then you've got last year you have CVA comes out with the Paramount, which is a 400 yard muzzleloader. And in the time of black powder, that was absolutely unheard of to have one shoot accurately at that range. Oh yeah, absolutely. And, and, uh, yeah, I think, I think you sent me those videos about the fire stick and that CVA and stuff here. And, um, I, I watched those, those things are pretty interesting and, and just be able to get that consistency again on a black powder charge from the field. Um, I thought those, those are great advancements and I'm sure depending on which state you're at or which tag you're drawing or something like that, whether or not you can use something like that. I know some States and some hunts you draw on, they're not going to allow like a two or five primer or something like that, but uh, if you have an opportunity to live in a state where you can use those those options for black powder hunting, those would be a, a they're they're really cool. Uh, they just they really are. There, there's some great advancements there. So we recorded quite the episode. It's, it's going to be a pretty long one. Definitely the longest one we've probably recorded yet. <laughs> yes, it's uh, been a long one. But we got we got as deep as we're willing to go. Uh, unless you wanted to spend the next 24 hours listening to us talk about how deep this can go because that's really where we could go and we still wouldn't reach the bottom yeah yeah no we, we definitely left some stuff out and maybe we'll we'll like uh we, we'll we'll touch on some some more uh reloading stuff or something like that here maybe in a later episode yeah we're definitely gonna have to come back and talk on reloading in and of itself because that can be a whole two-hour episode uh and you like we said before you can get just as deep into the weeds on that as you can rifle building so what have you got uh, for your tip of the week, Tyke? 
Well, I mean, talking about what we're talking about, a full custom build, I, um, what my tip is just going to be, if you're planning on doing a full custom, a semi-custom, uh, make a plan and and just start working through that plan. Now, this has got to be probably a very fluid plan as you as you make it and as you do the rifle build because you're going to learn along the way and things are going to change. Uh, but start with a plan, have a goal in mind, and then uh, start begin to initiate that plan. And as, as you face different challenges and stuff and overcome those, you'll need to adapt that plan down the future. But if you have an idea of where you want to end up and you have a pretty good idea of how to get there, then you're going to end up spending less money on a full custom or a partial custom build in the long run just because you took the time to you know, to make this plan. And so you're not buying things multiple times um, unless it ends up being more cost-effective to do that. Um, so I would just say, you know, take if you're planning on doing this something, it's, uh, we're talking about a lot of money here. You're going to have some time uh, while you're saving that money. And making that plan kind of gives you a goal as far as what kind of cash you're going to need to complete this bill build and, uh, you know, kind of a timeline for when it's going to be done. And so you have uh, a lot of time there to figure out what you want it to do, what you want it to look like and how you want to perform and uh, uh, just make that plan and then uh, follow it as close as you can. I, I think that that will, will save you a lot of money when you're looking at doing a build like this. So, and you know, you say with that plan from one year to the next, the technologies are going to change. So just what you think you want today, maybe you, you may be something looking totally different by the time it comes time to buy that part. Oh, so, yeah. Like you said, it's got to be fluid. Um, but I would say this for those optics that um, you have the fogging issue. What I do to help eliminate that in mind, uh, when you have those big temperature swings, say you've had it inside a cabin, you come outside to the freezing cold, the, the optics are going to fog. I like to take my rifle and leave it usually outside in my truck where I can still lock it up right outside of wherever I'm sleeping. If I'm going to go out into the cold the next day. And then, uh, when I take it out of the truck where there's not such an extreme temperature shift, obviously it's still not as cold inside the truck as it is outside, but with a, a more minor temperature shift, I, I tend to see, I tend to not see fogging. Yeah, that, so. that's the, uh, that's where that, all that comes from is just the heat. You know, you've got that moisture on the, on the lens there from being in a warm room. And then, and then when you go outside, that moisture then condensates and turns into a, a visible liquid on the lens there. So yeah, just, just if you can keep that temperature shift down a little bit, uh, it makes a big difference too. So yeah, that's, that's pretty good, pretty good tip there. Tyke, I appreciate you joining us and, and being here for the six-month mark uh, and, and join us for the last three weeks, really, to get these all these episodes knocked out. I think we really went back and we we beat up a lot of what we talked out about in episode 14, and uh, we covered a lot more than we ever could have in that first episode. So uh, it's been good. I really appreciate you being here with us. Yeah, thank, thank you for having me, and, uh, you know, so hopefully we'll be able to get a chance to come back on and uh, maybe – maybe cover a different topic like like reloading or or really really drill down on maybe you know some of these real specific things so uh and if you guys have listened this long because this is going to be a long one you've got to go over there and give us a review at this point so get on itunes if whatever platform you're listening allows us allows you to give us a review do it there um uh, 
hop on social media and find us on Facebook or Instagram, follow us, shoot us a message, tell us what you want to hear us talk about, and we'll get around to it. So until next week, this has been another episode of the Fresh Outdoors podcast.